This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry and Becca, the gang gathered. And boy, oh boy, Anderson Cooper talks to uh, James Comey last night, FBI director... Interesting. What huge bombshell news came out of that interview? Uh, the fact that he is 1,000% consistent. So the exact same thing out of every other interview. He said, he, the, 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 oh. don't overlook that. We live okay. in a world well, today you can. with a it's... politic today that, that people aren't consistent. And this guy is so amazingly consistent. You just think they'd roll this thing out in a way where, hey, I'm going to tell you a new little nugget no. this time. He sold 600,000 books. I know, but that's the, that's the issue. Is this is, it's, it's actually fascinating because you, you used to hear that he was a man of such integrity, such character. Then he's been beat up in the news right. because of the leaking and all of the decisions about Hillary Clinton and everything. And now you actually see his rationale and it's mm-hmm. very rational. Right. It's very rational. It's like and what's somebody asked him, so what's the nickname that you have for the president? The president has a lot of nicknames for you, Slimy, Comey, all these things. And he's like, I just call him president because I respect the office. It's just what you do. Well, that's not funny at all. It's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It really is. It's amazing. He's, Should have had a better line. Yeah. But Something he's funny. He just the funny thing. He's not a funny guy, really. Right. And it, I don't know. I think it's just fascinating that. Of all the people having to take President Trump on, you really do have a guy that that honestly believes in. He's like a Boy Scout. Hmm. It's it's about it's about truth and justice. Truth and justice. Do you want that, or do you like the uh, the senator that uh, referred to him as uh, the president as Captain Bone Spurs? Yeah, no, no, you don't no. like that one. We don't okay. need more. Huh. We don't need more of that. <laughs> it really it was an incredible experience, and. Um, I don't know. It's – I don't know. I've talked to a lot of people, actually two people that know Comey, mm. know him. And they're like – they've never understood what he was doing and because he has so much integrity. Well, and now they understand. It seems that it the, makes sense. the rules are – that uh, aren't rules. They're more guidelines than anything else. But the guidelines in that situation when you're around an election and you have information yeah. that may affect it is to just sit back, let the election happen. Right. And not affect the outcome. But, but he, he's looking at yeah. it like it looks I'm supporting one side over the other. Well, and either could, way, he, I, he, he was in this weird catch-22. He yeah. had already told the entire nation there was no investigation in June or July. And three or four months later, they're investigating her again. So he like had to say something. He had told Congress that he would report to them if anything changed. Right. And then something changed. And, and it's like it, it was between – you know, creating a problem that's not great by saying something or something that would have been catastrophic by letting someone win and then the announcement about the investigation continuing, mm. it would have looked like the Democrats had rigged the entire thing. Right. So – but I mean I think what's crazy about it is when you listen to the logic, it makes sense. Like that's logical, right? Yeah, you were caught. And interestingly, every single thing that people don't like about Comey, he has a very rational – Approach, yeah. I, I didn't leak documents as an FBI director. I leaked them as a private citizen, mm-hmm. non, uh, whatever they call it, non top secret, non confidential information. I leaked, yeah. right? 
but he wouldn't call it a leak because a leak is a legal And term. I've, I've listened to people on both sides talk yeah. about it, and both sides don't like it because it didn't go their way. No, right. And they oh, have yeah. completely, in their minds, rational arguments as to why he should have leaned their way versus right. the other way. And, and his way was, I need to stay as impartial as possible. It's so interesting. And he, um, he also took on the Republicans. Whatever you say, Republicans, a president should not be saying that citizens should be put under arrest. Right. That should not – that's not the job of a president is to decide who goes to prison and who doesn't. And, but Republicans, where are you? Why aren't you saying anything – If he said, he, he said if President Obama was doing the exact same thing President Trump is saying right now, you would be livid. Sure. But you say nothing. Well – it's it's an election year, Matt. Politics. <laughs> they anyway. Want, at the time, they wanted tax cuts, and now it's an election year. Uh, we'll get well, to it next year. And now it's going to swing. Yeah. It always swings the other way. Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else is going on? Uh, Trump's pick to head the Department of Veterans Affairs has withdrawn himself from consideration. He has? Yesterday, there was, uh, you know, the whole, uh, what, the accusations that he stood, what it said, uh, being drunk on the job, over-prescribing painkillers. Wednesday was alleged he once crashed a government car vehicle after getting drunk. He says that didn't happen, but he calls these attacks on his character and integrity completely false and fabricated, but uh, withdrawn because it's a distraction and he probably wouldn't get... uh, nominated because of all the quote distractions. So is he just going to stay as the physician to I the don't, president? I don't know how that I, that may he's already passed like they said the White House yesterday said he passed four background checks to get that job well, well, to be the physician for the president. Well, I know but so did what's his name that was abusing his wife. I know so I, I don't know yeah. what you're going to do there. Uh, based on questions raised by the Supreme Court justices Wednesday during the oral arguments in Trump versus Hawaii which concerns President Trump's ban on travelers from six majority Muslim countries. Where does uh, not appear to be an obvious five-judge majority to strike down the ban, the Washington Post reports. Lower courts have struck down three iterations of the ban to date, claiming it improperly uh, overrides congressional lawmaking power, engages in nationality discrimination, and does not demonstrate that nationality alone renders entry into the broad class of individuals as heightened security risk hmm. or that a current screening processes are inadequate. Trump had specifically called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslim Muslims entering the U.S. when he introduced the idea in late 2015. Conservative Justice Samuel Alito noted that only 8% of the world's Muslim population would be affected by the ban, saying a reasonable observer would not think this was a Muslim ban. Huh. It's only 8% oh. of the world population is affected, so how is right. this a Muslim ban? Yeah. Other than the president said it. But it's a nationality ban. So now the question is, can as a private citizen, if you say things publicly, and then as a president you put forth something that you, you call policy... Do those two things intersect at all, and do they have effect on? And, uh, and so they're like, we're just going to look at him as a when he was president, not when he was a private citizen. Yeah, it's kind of what the court's looking at. Dodging that bullet, it's interesting. President uh, French President Emmanuel Macron was all smiles with President Trump during the joint press conference Tuesday, but his Wednesday speech to Congress made it clear where his views diverge. Macron appeared before Congress to address lawmakers as part of an official state visit uh, by France where he denounced several of Trump's administration policy moves. Macron encouraged the U.S. to refrain from turning inward, uh, urging lawmakers away from nationalism and towards policies with a more global view. He was, I do not share the fascination for new strong powers, the abandonment of freedom and the illusion of nationalism, he said. We can uh, choose isolationism, withdrawn 
withdrawal and nationalism, this is an option. It can be tempting to us as a temporary remedy for our fears, but closing the door to the world will not stop the evolution of the world. That's a good point. Can't close your doors to the world. will not stop the change of the world. It'll continue to happen, so be part of whatever's happening is yeah. what he's trying to say. Uh, President Donald Trump responded to Kanye West on Wednesday afternoon, thanking the rapper for his support. Thank you, Kanye. Very cool, his Twitter uh, post said. Um, <laughs> I know. West had called the president my brother, saying they are both dragon energy. Oh, no, they're dragon. They're dragon energy. Oh, you drag- don't have oh, to agree drag- with Trump, but the mob can't make me not love him, the rapper wrote. West also tweeted a picture of himself wearing a signed, he has a signed Make America Great Again cap. His wife, Kim Kardashian, defended her husband on Twitter, saying he was years ahead of his time. Okay. Dragon energy, Matt. Yeah, dragon energy. Made total sense when I read that. Totally. And then tweeted out pictures of dragons because, you know, I don't tweet, but I had to. You had to today. I felt motivated to tweet a dragon. (laughs) Sure. Finally, uh, that's the wrong story. We'll get to that one later. Get the right one there. Uh, Police say a driver pulled over in Thunder Bay, Ontario, had an unusual seating arrangement. He had a folding lawn chair where the driver's seat should have been in the truck he was driving. They say an officer stopped the pickup truck Tuesday afternoon after noticing the license plate were allegedly not authorized for that vehicle. Upon approaching the driver, police say the officer noticed a suspicious seating arrangement. The driver, sitting on a lawn chair, were just right in front of the steering wheel. Yeah. Um, the investigator said that it was it wasn't the only thing wrong with the truck. They, the truck they said it was impounded for a multitude of defects, including a broken windshield blocking the driver's view, a defective door handle that effectively trapped the driver inside the truck, and no seatbelts. Wow! And the picture's awesome. You have this truck, <laughs> the front seat's totally gone, gone, and there's just a lawn chair sitting there. Was it fastened to the vehicle? It did not look as if it was. It so was when just, he turns, he could just slide just all the way across. Kind the of tips over. Cab. And, yeah. Wow. Now it wasn't a nice launcher. It didn't have like a drink holder and that kind oh, of stuff. Oh, it was in a it. cheap one. Yeah, but you know, it got the job done. It looked like. But if you're going to put a lawn chair in your car, you probably ought to get a nice one. I'd get a recliner. Ah, uh, yeah, that would be. I mean, then just better. Then just have hand, you know, handheld accelerator. <laughs> There's a website I go to, and they have a bunch of uh, photos. But they'll put 20 photos together, and it says, look, I fixed it. And it's stuff like that where they why, use duct why tape. Why do you to, go to that website? It's just fun to look at. People are duct taping things to their car. <laughs> that's Bungee cords are a popular oh, uh, no, that's use, for, use case for holding your door onto your car when it falls off. Where would you be without duct tape and bungee cords? And lawn chairs. That's a good point. Cinder blocks, people using cinder blocks to sit on. Yeah. You know. I mean, who? yeah, who needs Ford? We'll get to Ford news, too. Yeah, Holy cow. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how the U.S. is stingier with child care and maternity leave than the rest of the world. I thought we were ahead of the game in a lot of this stuff, but apparently uh, not so. So, do, I mean, we, we, want our, we want to be able to stay home with our kids, right? It's an important thing that we are with our family at a time of birth, right? Well, not in America. Apparently, we're kind of stingy with it. We'll talk about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Nearly one in four children in the United States are in single-parent households, and in the majority of two-parent households, both parents are working. Yet childcare is generally unaffordable, and paid leave is not available to most U.S. parents. Uh, is the U.S. stingier with childcare and maternity leave than the rest of the world? Well, here to help us answer that question is uh, Professor Joya Mishra, who is a professor of sociology and public policy at the University of Massachusetts. Her research and teaching primarily focus on social inequality, including inequalities by gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, sexuality, and educational levels. Uh, Joya Mishra, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, this is a really big deal, I think. And, um, you know, conservatives, liberals, whatever you have, it seems like it just makes sense that we need to find a way if most of us are working. We've got to find a way to take care of our kids when we're when we're working. And also when we have new kids, new babies um, create an opportunity for parents to bond, to be with their family. Uh, why? Well, first of all, where do we rank in the United States when it comes to uh, maternity leave, child care, in relation to the rest of the world? Well, we're not doing as well as we could be, um, and that's for sure. Uh, many countries, uh, wealthy countries, started adopting maternity leave in the early years of the 20th century, so like around 1908. Um, we adopted FMLA uh you know, not so long ago, but unfortunately it's an unpaid leave. And so that makes us very, very unusual. There are um, four other countries, they're all very um, uh, low-income countries that don't offer a paid leave, and the rest of the countries in the world do. Okay, so let me get this straight. We're, we're, we're the United States of America, and we are, we are hanging out with four other countries that don't offer paid leave. Um, but those are like th- those those are countries you might expect to not have maybe the resources, right? So, what what countries are those? Uh, so, those countries are Lesotho, Liberia, Papua New Guinea, and Swaziland. Wow. Okay. Well, that yeah, that makes sense. Talk to us <laughs> why why I mean I get the political side of it. I'm a business owner. I get how hard it is to do this as a business, but I also I want my family to be healthier. Um, what do you see? I mean, I guess I guess having FMLA is a step somewhere. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to be taking us very quickly anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that the paid leave is really the the logical next step, and I do think that there is a lot of support for this. Um, many of the states have started adopting paid leave systems, um, and you know, they use different approaches to it. But you know, they can tap into unemployment funds. Um, they it's been very successful, and the states have adopted it. So it's actually, I think, something that's fairly workable. Um, I do think that there's been a lack of support from businesses, and especially small businesses, that feel um, some strain about, you know, providing a paid leave. Um, this is in part why it could be a good thing for the government to get involved, because um, then it. it is not necessarily just on the backs of the business um, owners. Because we, we've heard about that idea where maybe businesses pay a tax, that tax, or employees even pay um, a little additional tax, and that tax goes into a fund, and that fund then pays for the leave from government funds when people need to take and they might get some company support or leave, but then they also would, and they'd get the freedom to go, but they could get paid by the government for their leave. 
Exactly, exactly. And, you know, these kinds of leaves, so some people will say, well, I don't think that this should be um, paid for through taxes because only, you know, I'm, I've decided not to have children. I don't think that um, I want to support other people who have decided to have children. But these, well, there's, there's two arguments against that. One is that children actually are really necessary for our economy. We need future generations of workers. Right. We need <laughs> we need these people. They're not. Um, there's an economist, Nancy Fulbright, who has this whole argument about how children are not pets. Um, they actually add <laughs> to society. Um, Glad so, we got that clarified. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. But right. I mean, they add to society, and they. I mean, it's there's it creates industry. I mean, it creates toys. It creates activities. It creates more taxes on meals and food and. Absolutely. It's, you know, like we really, we do not want to go down um, the route of, um, of not having children. And then the second piece of this is that these kinds of paid leaves could be used for caring for parents, for siblings, right. for partners who are ill. Um, it does not necessarily, we, we don't necessarily need to like um, only have paid leave for parents. We should just be thinking about how family is really central to our society and need support. Such a great idea, and and especially with baby boomers and an aging, um, with aging generations, we're all going to be needing it some way, one way or another. Absolutely. So is it? Um, so overall, like, what? Who is leading in this? What what country is way ahead? And maybe we could use to model some of our ideas. Um, and and is there any hope? Do we see any places in the country where? There's states that are doing certain things. There's definitely been, um, a, a, you know, many countries have been experimenting with paid leave for, you know, more than a century. Um, and the research that I've done with my colleagues do suggest that there are models that make a lot of sense. Um, and these are models that um, don't necessarily provide many, many years of leave. So part of what we find is that countries that provide two or three or four years of leave, that actually can have... Um, uh, you know, sort of a negative impact on mothers being able to retain employment. Mm. And usually those very long leaves are not paid well. Um, so we're sort of shooting more for the um, short, you know, sort of actually moderate leaves. So very short leaves are not very effective. But sort of a moderate leave, so somewhere between six months or 12 months, up to 15 months, um, that kind of a leave actually helps people retain connection to the um, to the labor market, which we need because most families can't survive on one income. Um, But it also allows time to care for children. Um, And so countries like, I mean, Canada has 52 weeks. um, So even just our northern neighbor has, you know, significantly better than we do. But France has 42 weeks. The U.K. has 39 weeks. Um, Sweden is a little bit more than a year. And uh, another really interesting piece of this is that um, when these leave policies are most effective, they actually hold out some of that leave for fathers to take. Hmm. Um, when fathers are taking leave and not just mothers, it actually makes um, makes care seem more normalized, that everybody has care responsibility. Hmm. Um, and it just has very, very good impacts, and it definitely has you know very strong impacts on fathers' bonding and connection to their children. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And then you wonder, long-term, what's the impact of that? What's the impact of sharing the care a little bit more and the bonding that might be there? That might be, I mean, that could be powerful. Very, very powerful Powerful in terms of strengthening families. One of the things we see that in, in countries that 
you know, sort of um, focus some of that parental leave on fathers. Um, most of those countries also have sick leave days where you can care for family members who are sick. Mm. And fathers are much more likely to take sick leave days if they um, also were in a country that had this sort of paid um, paternal leave set aside. And are these are these? I assume the these longer term or moderate, like six to fifteen months. I assume most of those in other countries are being paid by the government. That's right. That's right. You know, they're paid through tax, taxes, and they're um, just considered like you know, sort of what any um, what any industrialized country would want to do to ensure that its citizens are able to have children and able to you know support their families while also maintaining employment. The other side of it is that most of these countries also provide some form of subsidized child care. So in the U.S., we're really used to K through 12 being public education, um, but in many countries there's this um, early education, as it's called, and child care that helps support children at these earlier ages, and it's very high quality. So in the U.S., we have a lot of child care available. Um, some of it's affordable. Um, but much of the really high-quality care is not affordable for most families. Um, and so what these countries also do is they step in and they provide these child care systems that are really, really high-quality but not necessarily, um, you know, really difficult for parents to afford. There's usually some sort of a sliding scale for really young children, and then um, it becomes free at three. Um, mm. And so children three to six are in early education, um, and again, we see all these really positive outcomes. So, you know, um, child care is this thing that has these wonderful outcomes. It has outcomes in terms of children's educational readiness, um, but it's also, like, you know, connected to higher graduation rates, lower rates of teen pregnancy, um, lower rates of juvenile crime. There's just all of these positive things that happen if we can get children into high-quality early education. Oh, absolutely. Again, we're speaking with Joya Mishra, who is a professor of sociology and public policy at the University of Massachusetts. She's talking to us about the fact that in the U.S. we may be a little stingier with our child care and maternity leave, which in the end is indirectly impacting our our families and our family's health and, and really overall the, the country as well. Um, you know what, Joy? I I look at it too, and I think I mean these are always kind of also divided political issues as well. But it seems like many times the people that are so supposedly pro-family might be the first to say, "Yeah, but we don't we don't want to give maternity leave." I mean, we've got to run a business, and so is there a way to be pro-business and pro-family? And do you see any examples of that? I think there. Are. There absolutely is. I actually think that most business owners are, um, they are really well served by these policies. Um, the last thing that business owners need is a lot of turnover as parents are unable to sort of balance work and care. Um, and, you know, you invest in your employees and you want to be, you want right. to be able to hang on to them. Um, these kinds of policies really allow you to hang on to, to, your, to your really strong employees. Um, one of the things that the California um, paid leave has shown is quite interesting. So many of the small business owners there were really anxious about this policy as it was passing, you know, really concerned about what kinds of effects it might have on them. Um, what has ended up happening is that it's increased productivity in California. So oh, it's really? actually been a really good thing for the economy. 
Um, there's like sort of a, a negative piece of this. Because the state doesn't have really enough money to publicize this policy, the people who are most likely to take the policy are people who were at firms who already um, was, were providing some sort of a paid parental leave. Mm. So more middle-class professional workers are actually taking the, um, taking the paid leave because their employers let them know because their employers, if the state picks it up, don't yeah. have to pay for it, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, but, for the, um, but for the lower-income workers, there's been less of a take-up because they're just not as um, – their employers are less likely to tell them, and there's less of an incentive. Um, so, you know, one of the things we want to do is we want to make sure that we we um, create a system, and I do think a federal system would be one that could be publicized enough so that everybody knows about it and mm-hmm. that they can take advantage of it. But I, do, I don't really think that there's a lot of evidence that this um, kind of a program hurts employers. I think that in the long term, it's definitely been um, value-added. But it may also, I guess, so it, it may impact – even uh, lower income people differently. There might be some discrimination there. There might be discrimination even racially, maybe ethnically, depending on where they're getting their information, how they get their information. But it seems, too, that it would also negatively, adversely impact women versus men. Yes, that's right. I mean, women are definitely much more likely to take the, uh, to take a paid leave, especially around parent, um, uh, paid parental leave. Um, and And if they don't have that capability, so what happens in the U.S. today, honestly, is that many women, um, once they have a child, um, they can't really, they just, it doesn't work. And so um, they may leave their jobs or they may um, try to take a brief unpaid leave, uh, but many, there's just much more turnover um, among uh, mothers because of the lack of support. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and and then, um, I mean, if you were, you can't, so you have to lose money to go be with your family. Um, you might even lose skills. You might lose opportunity. You might, just because you might be, you might feel like you have to quit instead of staying in the company and staying connected and just being on leave. Um, what do we, is there anything we can just do as, uh, I guess, everyday citizens? What do I do? As a father, or if if uh, any listener out there that may be you know nearing having a baby, what can they do to make sure that they maximize the leave that is there for them? Well, one thing I would definitely suggest is checking um, checking in your state and seeing what kinds of opportunities are there, um, whether there are any kinds of supports that are uh, you know are in addition to FMLA, which is twelve weeks of unpaid leave. Um, and it, unfortunately, FMLA only works for people who are at certain companies that have 50 or more employees. So there's also um, right. things like that. But most states have really good information that it's just available where if you Google, you know, what are my rights um, and maternity leave, you will be able to come up with, okay, these are, the, these are the opportunities for me. The other thing that I really think is important is that legislators need to hear from us that this is something that really matters to us. So at the state legislature, um, so at the state legislature level, um, your representatives and your state senators, I do really think they need to know that this is something that that people absolutely need and want to see happen. Um, even in the last presidential election, most of the main candidates, Republican and Democrat, had some conversation about um, maternity leave and child care. Um, it was one of 
of the things that Ivanka Trump really talked about. It was certainly something that Hillary um, Clinton talked about. And so I think politicians are starting to get it in the U.S. I think that they really are seeing that working families need these kinds of supports. And, um, and if you're committed to family, you will actually um, move to act. Um, That's so true. I mean, finally, if if you are committed, then you, you you ought to get on the game. Get in, say something to your legislators, say something, you know, push, voice that it's important for families to be able to grow stronger and be, and have some of this time together. We need a lot of uh, pro-family uh, legislation. We appreciate Joya Mishra for being with us today. Joya is a professor of sociology and public policy at the University of Massachusetts. Again, her research is focused primarily on social inequality and uh, inequalities by gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, and education level. It's also, think of that, not fair that uh, just those that have companies that are informed and don't want to pay for certain benefits, they're going to make sure that everyone understands the government will pay for it. But other companies won't. Man, we got to figure this out, folks. It's one thing to say you love family. It's another to actually create legislation uh, that's pro-family. So many, uh, so many hands in the pot there. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. Up next, we'll be talking about how to put the word co in the co-parenting model. How do you co-parent with your significant other? I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, we talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and, and believe strongly in your family that, you know, one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family. And there's a lot of pressure to, to how do you make ends meet when, like we heard earlier, it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet. Um, so at some point, we have to we have to really co-parent. We have to learn to, to be together as parents um, on our family issues. I see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up, and we fight about things. We fight about chores, and we fight about discipline, and we fight about everything, right? So at some point— we need to we need to figure out how to how to work better together. And I wanted to give you some ideas um, that uh, that that might help as we as we go through life. One idea that I think is super important is if if it's not working in your family, if you don't feel like you're working really well together um, as a as a partnership. One of my I, I mean, a lot of times we would just blame one partner. You know, he's not helping out. She's not helping out. But one of the things that I teach, and it's, it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes because just symbolically I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, – the, the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. OK? So if a system is really one-sided, then um, it, there may be uh, – the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one-sided way. And an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of of quality for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you? 
or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish, how you uh, wash something. Um, is it just – have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, and so – but think about that because almost inevitably when I see somebody who has nobody helping around the house, many times I see that same person being a perfectionist. And nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't they, – they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner to not be as involved in the parenting? What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? What did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is different now than how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's she might, you know, have the baby on her hip more. So she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so is there a way that we we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most you know, energy, anxiety, frustration, issue about something, really I think should be the owner of it. If, if, if you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then – you probably ought to own it so that you can, you know, go manage it the way you want to manage it. But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it and um, and you, you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than, than communicating and making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions, some things we ought to be discussing is what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you do you want to play? Do you do you want to just we I think a lot of us just default to you know typical kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff, mom does the inside stuff. But I mean you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what do we what roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from one to ten. Rank how well you're both doing as the, the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co-parenting skills. If, if we want to be better co-parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh, in a way that um, we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need, to, we don't need more excuses. We don't need more uh, reasons to blame somebody. What we need is we need to put the co in it. We'll continue discussing more co-parenting issues next hour. Uh, but, you know, life's not easy. But it doesn't have to be nearly as hard as we make it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life.
Have you ever known somebody going through a midlife crisis? Why do so many of us go through these uh, these you know impactful moments in our life? Dr. Hans Schwant uh, is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Center for Health and Well-Being. He says a mid-career crisis. Uh, can happen to anyone. It can hit even those who objectively have the most fulfilling jobs. And we wanted to revisit an interview we did with him so that we could give you more ideas and tools to handle your midlife crisis. I began the interview with Dr. Schwant by asking, what do we need to know about a mid-career or midlife crisis? So the first fascinating finding from the literature is that um, what you just described, this phenomenon that... um, there might be the dad that suddenly hates his job and then ends up in a Porsche. That is not just like the misery, misery of like some individuals, but this is a very widespread um, regularity. So hmm. that life satisfaction is high when people are young, then it turns, starts to decline in the mid-30s, and then it bottoms out like between 40, 50, mid-40s, mid-50s, but then it increases again. This is the good news. That is the good news. It's so, so it really is like a, it's a U-curve, right? Exactly. So yeah. it follows a U-curve. And this U-curve that's observed for men but also for women, it's independent of how many children they have. It's independent of people's incomes and their positions. So it's really found across the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Hmm. So really, it's this, the midlife crisis is, it should basically just be expected. Um, to some extent, yes. And in particular... Um, so the big question that I, I was interested is, in, like, if we see it independent of people's life circumstances, like, what, is, what are the drivers of the mid-career or the mid-life crisis? And in particular, if it's such a regularity, why does it catch us by surprise? Yeah, yeah, because it, it really does. And then, but, I mean, it, I've seen it destroy marriages. I've seen it destroy families. I've seen it, yet it's, there. I guess you're saying there are some things that we could anticipate um, to, to, I guess, mitigate it? Yeah, so the, the, um, what, what, I, what I tried to find out was exactly this question, um, what do people expect? Why don't they expect uh, um, um, the, the, these uh, um, lows in their midlife, uh, in, in, the, in the life satisfaction? And to answer this question, I looked at um, longitudinal data from Germany, and that's like an, um, a unique survey that follows over 23,000 individuals mm. for a long period of time, from 1991 to 2004. And importantly, in this survey, people are not only asked their current life satisfaction, but also their expected life satisfaction in five years' time. Okay. So because the same people are followed over time, we can then look at how well people predict their future. And do they predict it very well? So what, it turns out that like young people um, are really overly optimistic. So... When they ask about their future life satisfaction, they don't anticipate the slide down the U-curve, mm. but instead they expect strong increases in their life satisfaction. Okay. Is but that just nat- that's just natural being a hopeful kid, I guess? Without- exactly. And there's probably even something positive. So neuroscientists have observed this for a long time, and they believe that over-optimism is um, based on biased information processing in the brain. So they have done brain studies where they... Um, distract parts of the brain, and then suddenly people, young people become um, better predictors of their future. That's great. And, and in general, we see that, that young people often think they will, believe, they, they will beat the average. They'll better be the average. They, 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 they will be the lucky ones yeah. who get the good job, who have the happy marriage, and the healthy children. 
It's it's interesting. So um, we really are overly optimistic when we're young, and we we are biased. We bias the info to be, I guess, more optimistic, uh, and, and then we also think we are not only we not only bias it, we actually think we're exceptional to it. So exactly, exactly, and and th- 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 this could also be, of course, um, efficient in like uh, in in people's lives, right? Probably, maybe we wouldn't start many things. Um, uh, in our life and we are young if we knew like maybe we wouldn't get married if we knew that we would divorce right. later no, right. on with with uh, like a 30% chance or something that's true so, huh? so this might be something uh, uh, beneficial and not something that we necessarily want to change however what happens when we age is that uh, many things don't turn out as nice right. as we planned so for example People might not um, climb up the career ladder as quickly as they expected, or maybe we do make all the career that we expected, but then realize that like the high incomes or the prestige that they are not as satisfying mm. as we as we uh, hope for. Yeah. And at the same time, that's also what I find in my data is that the high expectations about the future they are just downwards because, of course, we are learning, right? Yeah, it's right. Not that we are just like have these rosy uh, expectations forever. We learn that things are not as nicely, and and might also not be as good in the future as we always hoped. So this is what makes mid-age or midlife a time of double misery because <laughs> we not only have the disappointments that things don't work out as, as nice as you thought but we also have what i call like evaporating aspirations sure oh you know it, you're you're hitting reality yeah so your aspirations are evaporating and you're it's kind of like you rode the wave of excitement but you just landed on a beach exactly. <laughs> and you're done and, and, and it's not, and the beach is gross. It's not yeah, a healthy, beach nice beach. The beach doesn't look that nice yeah. in, in that moment. <laughs> and in particular, that's something paradoxical, um, is that often those who have the least objective reasons to complain, often these people, they suffer the most from the uh, midlife crisis. And this is because they feel ungrateful and disappointed with themselves just because it seems so unjustified. Huh. And this is something important because often these people they don't even dare to tell other people about their feelings because they think that's just ridiculous and that's just something, they, the feeling they should not have. So, so, so if you're more self-deprecating or more, I guess, um, if, if you're not going to share it, you, you, you keep all of this in and you, I guess you can't process it out, you don't work it out? Exactly, and this is this is also why it's so important to have this public discussion about it. You know, to have like a uh, discussion as we have right now on the phone, yeah. and spread the knowledge about about these very, um, let's say, biological or very natural developments that we that most of us go through oh, at some so point in, in midlife. And um, in response to, to to my research findings, I got people writing me from all over the planet and telling me how helpful it was already just to know that what they are feeling um, is not something they have to be frustrated about with themselves, but that's actually okay to, to feel it. And this, like, this can be a vicious circle, you know, like yeah. if you're disappointed about your own disappointment, then things just get worse. So just by, by acknowledging that maybe it's something in normal developmental stage, and it's also something temporary, this can already be like a light at the end of the tunnel and help you um, yeah, not suffer so much from it. That, again, is Dr. Hans Schwant, uh, who uh, was talking to us about our midlife or mere mid-career crises. 
It really – it's a real phenomenon, isn't it? It's something that – it happens and it happens to – I think um, I think it could happen to all of us. It does happen to all of us. It impacts us differently as well. But uh, one of the things I think we're, we're learning just about life is at some point change is going to be an inevitable inevitable part of it and also how we see and, and look at our lives. We've talked on the show a lot about Carol Dweck's research um, that that is about kind of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And it sounds like if you want to get through a midlife crisis, you better be ready for growth and have a growth mindset instead of just fixed thinking, oh, yeah, it's done. It is what it is. I don't. There's no way to fix this. I'll just buy a motorcycle or I'll just buy a Ferrari or a sports car. At some point, let's keep changing. Let's keep learning. Let's keep stretching and growing and adapting to the life that we've been handed and see if we can't improve upon it. And if not, let's look for the good that is in it. That's the other crazy thing. There's a lot of good stuff going on in all of our life. We'll continue the journey, folks. More next hour on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Becca Hurley and Terry South. The gang is gathered. And, uh, you know, you know, it's a big deal because Becca has been, um, Becca... She's getting she's getting a handle on this crazy thing she has to do keeping me on track. You've oh, really? got a very hard job and you're getting your you're getting your hands wrapped around it. You're doing a nice job. Ah, oh, thanks, Matt. Uh we've only had two people injured. Oh yeah, that's true. And which is a great thing. Only one of which needed stitches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that wasn't even mostly your fault. And they said they weren't gonna sue. Yeah. So it's a good time. <laughs> I think this is the best track record I've ever had at the job. It really is it? Is it really? Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to think. Yeah, there was the I mean, the building is still standing. Yeah. So and then that fire, that sign. one fire, oh, your last right. job. Yep. But again, that wasn't your fault. You were just oh, it never is. It was your blowtorch. It just wasn't your fault. Pure coincidence. Yeah. By the way, and what did we learn from that, Becca? But never turn over your blowtorch to somebody that has never used a blowtorch. Blowtorch. Exactly. You know, they always say that. My mom said it all the time. Didn't I know, didn't she have it on a pillow? What's that? She had it. She had she had uh, hand stitched it onto a pillow, right? <sighs> yeah, she's so crafty like I that. I love her that way. That's. Great. I think she found that idea on Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we've got a lot to discuss. Um, apparently, the White House doctor uh, that was was going to then be the VA director, the new VA director, Ronnie Jackson is his name. He has withdrawn his name as the VA secretary nominee, amidst a whole other. I mean, a lot of other issues. Supposed alleged scandals have come up, a flurry of allegations about his professional conduct. He's just out. And he's like, none of those things are true. It's all just a bunch of hooey. But he's not going to run. He's not going to stay in the running for the VA secretary. Well, and isn't that what Trump recommended to him? Despite the fact that he nominated him after some of this came out, he's like, well, you know, I really wouldn't go for it if I were him. Which is kind of a weird thing to say, right? It's a weird thing to nominate a guy. To be your VA director, a lot were just saying initially that what does he know about directing anything? He's only he's just the White House doctor, and so that created issues. But then other stories came up. He allegedly may have crashed a car while uh, um, 
you know, maybe under the influence. Was he under the influence, allegedly? But then he, he also was walking around a hotel room on a presidential trip with President Obama. Not a hotel room, the hotel. And was knocking on doors of females in the middle of the night. Yeah. Allegedly. Yikes. And then they there's term uh, – it came out yesterday that uh, he's been referred to as the candy man because he just hands oh, out, out pills well, without yeah, sleeping pills. And, I mean that would be but very not nice. only sleeping pills but also the, the – whatever the get-up pill would oh. bring you out of the ambient sleep you go wow. into, right? So he's both ways, and the they're Candy like, Man can. Now he's been he's he's been vetted by how many White yeah. Houses? He worked for President yeah. uh, what Bush? President Bush even recommended him. Uh, President Obama loved him. Yeah, and but, then all then and all this stuff comes up now. It's like it just seems sort of a yeah. It's it's a little interesting. It, it seems very politically motivated, except. Right. Except it does maybe show a little bit of a hole in the White House where you need to vet people. Yeah. Like you actually need to vet. Like Pruitt now is going under some serious observation by the by Congress. But you need to vet people better. Well, Pruitt's approach today, he's going in front of Congress. To His, his approach will be it wasn't my fault. Yeah. I mean, I'm it the wasn't director, my fault. Other people gave me but money. But other people made the decision. Yeah. We'll see how far oh, that goes. Aren't you glad that you didn't have to go through any yeah. Senate hearing to get your job? I don't know. It was pretty tough. Yeah. There was you, like six people around the table asking me, like, where do I get my news? Yeah, that was funny. And I said the said... internet. Oh, is that what you said? No. I like, inst- I didn't say Facebook. I thought you said the Pokemon feed. No. I listed like a bunch of different places. I, yeah. I, I also went into this long explanation of how I organize all my news so I get it all in one place. Yeah. And then the HR representative was like, yeah, me too. I did and the then same we sort of bonded kind of in a nerd fashion about yeah. how we use this. this and then stuff. she fought yeah. for you like crazy. That was great. Everyone was else like, no way do you get your news feed Why off do of we Pokemon Go. that guy? I don't know. Pokemon Go can be very informative. It's <laughs> a great news feed. <laughs> Let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else have you found on Pokemon Go? French President uh, Emmanuel Macron on Wednesday said it was insane for the Trump administration to pull back from international agreements and treaties. The French leader, who was in Washington this week for an official state visit at the White House, predicted that the U.S. will pull out of the Iran nuclear deal ahead of the next deadline, which is May 12th, and for the U.S. to certify that Iran remains in compliance with the terms of the Obama-brokered accord. Uh, Macron called President Donald Trump, with whom he had formed a friendship, a deal maker who wants to find a deal under his conditions. Yeah. It's interesting. Is he done talking to President Trump for this visit? I'm not sure. It seems as if he said one thing and then showed up the next day with a whole different tone to his they, words Yeah, they were having Congress. a great time together. Yeah. It's like, it's like when your favorite buddy gets to have a slumber party. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And then he goes, and now he's kind of dissing him a little bit. A little bit. A little but, I mean, he's also, I guess, speaking truth for France. Yeah, and who, I, we don't know what he said in private with the president because they had right. several meetings. So, like, I'm gonna like, hey, but I might have to go over to the other house. I, and he said and this publicly in France that he doesn't think the president should get out of yeah the even the climate accord, the Iran deal, treaties, trade negotiations. He thinks it all will impact North Korea because they don't know where you're standing on these deals when you make an agreement. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Other news. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said 31 more people have fallen ill in an E. coli outbreak tied to romaine lettuce. No. The total number of cases now stands at 84. The outbreak has spread to 19 states. 42 patients were hospitalized. Nine developed a form of kidney failure. Yeah. 
No deaths have been Jeez. reported. I mean... This scares you to death. Not really. It Invest- really does, because Invest- you eat more romaine lettuce... Per pound. Per pound than the rest of us. Investigators have not yet identified a grower, supplier, distributor, or brand responsible for the outbreak, because it's so widespread. Uh, although it has been traced to the uh, Yuma, Arizona region, oh which apparently is the winter lettuce capital of the United States, I found out on the news. Ooh, that, imagine trying to you know, get people to come to town for that. <laughs> The we, Romaine Festival. Yeah. We got your lettuce here. The CDC warns people not to eat any form of romaine lettuce from uh, the Yuma area. Romaine con- romaine uh, confirmed not to be from the Yuma area is still okay to eat. Oh, really? My romaine comes from Salinas, California. I'm good. Look at you. Yeah. By the way, you're probably one of the only people that knows where your romaine lettuce comes from. Yeah, I searched from. it out. I was out. just thinking about that. Like, how what, do you know? I bought it from a big box store, so they, they they have a membership. They send you an email saying, hey, this product's okay. They have one where it's like three heads of romaine lettuce yeah. that you chop up yourself. Not good. Don't do that. Throw it away. But if you get this pre-chopped stuff they already have, even though they said pre-chopped is the problem. Look at you. It's pre-chopped from Yuma, not pre-chopped from Salinas. Okay, this is good to know. Um, golden. You, you feel really good, I can tell. I went to a restaurant here in town mm-hmm. to get some uh, get kind of a salad type yeah. of a product they make, and they used iceberg lettuce instead of romaine. It was disgusting. Not the same, huh? That's not real lettuce. That's it's not even that food. Lettuce. It's just water yeah. in sort of a fibrous form. It's gross. I love fibrous water. Politeness counts, at least when your child asks Alexa a question on an Amazon Echo speaker. Soon, when your youngster asks Alexa to solve a math problem by exhibiting good manners, Alexa, please tell me what 5 plus 7 is. The voice inside the Echo will not only supply the right answer, but it will then add positive reinforcement. By the way, thanks for asking so politely. Wow. This new magic word feature, as Amazon is calling it, starts to roll out in software upgrades for the Echo, Echo Plus, and Echo Dot smart speakers on May 9th as part of a set of free parental controls called the Free Time for Alexa. The feature reveals that Amazon is paying attention to a loud chorus of customers who are concerned that the act of rudely commanding Alexa to do something sends out the wrong kind of message, especially to the youngest members of your household. They're finding that kids ordering Alexa around, they start being more ruder in other aspects of their life. Do not disrespect Alexa. But it's really, we probably need to quit using her name. It was in the article, and it's a technology website. They know that it also triggers the speaker and ticks everybody off. But, you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? Sorry, Alexa. (laughs) That's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's great stuff. We run commercials that do the same thing. Yeah. So. Kids, be nice to her. She or Alexa. I guess it could be him. It could be. Depends on what voice you want to use. It could yeah. be British. It could be Australian. Yeah. Mine's kind of a... Mine's got a little gangster overtone. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's cool. I think that's the next level is they somehow figure out how to get celebrities what to if, voice it. Or like dialects. How right. cool. Like if you could get like a, like a Minnesota accent. Northern Minnesota accent, don't you know? What would that sound like? Let's see. So you'd... Uh... So you'd ask Alexa, you know, please, what's five plus five? And she'd say, oh, it's ten, don't you know? There oh, you yeah, go. you betcha. I'll help you with that one. <laughs> it's the show Fargo in our, right here in the studio. It's I great. I love Alexa. Brought right to you. <laughs> Finally, the arms race against porch pirates, the video doorbell, is an increasingly popular option for homeowners. Do you have one of these, Matt? No, we're have not you, there yet. Have you seen one of those? Yeah, that's cool. Neighbors that my brother has one, like I'll knock on the door and he'll just like, what? What do you want? <laughs> The videos, actually, he sent, my brother sent me videos 
from his doorbell of my cousin who works for UPS delivering boxes to his front door. He goes, look, it's Jeff. Oh, he's <laughs> shaming him. <laughs> look at Jeff delivering the boxes. He's not working. Take that Keep out. delivering the boxes, Jeff. The video shows a thief helping himself to a – this is in uh, Tracy, California – the video shows the, the thief helping himself to the homeowner's delivery on the doorstep before noticing he was on a camera, one of those doorbell cameras. He tries to unsuccessfully pry the camera off the wall before making it uh, making away in his car. And the police captain and the Tracy police uh, force there say it's kind of pointless to a certain extent because a lot of these devices store all the images to the cloud. So it's not like you're taking a camera and you take the footage with you. It's already somewhere else. So, and then also they said that it's interesting because uh, from the doorbell camera, you can sometimes actually help help you catch a bad guy because, you know, they'll see the face. This guy specifically walked up, kept his head down, reached down for the box, never making eye contact, seeing his head was covered by a hat. He picked up the box, looked over at the camera and went, huh. And they never really got a good shot of him until he went up to the camera and tried to rip it off the house. (laughs) And now they have this photo of him clear as day. They're trying to hunt them down. <laughs> oh, that is funny, though. That's great. Yep. These guys don't ever look at the doorbell. Criminals are funny. Just keep moving. Keep your hat on. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how to get more Americans to volunteer. We, uh, we, we, we need volunteers to make America work. And we have a wonderful researcher that's uh, been uh, doing a lot of work on that subject. We'll be uh, gleaning what we can straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, can you remember the last time that you volunteered for something? Hopefully you can, but uh, many people probably can't as U.S. volunteering numbers are dipping. So here to talk about it and joining us live in the studio is Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt. She is a professor of public administration at the University of Georgia and, uh, by the way, has her undergrad and master's degree from Brigham Young University. So she's here to discuss an article that uh, we found about how to get more Americans or how to get more Americans to volunteer. Rebecca, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. It's great to be here. So overall, the numbers you're saying for volunteering, they're dropping nationwide. Yes, at least a slight drop down from, I think, a high of around 29%, yeah. and now it's getting closer to about 25%. Is that volunteering in any way? Is, like, is there a difference between volunteering in um, maybe like a, like a volunteering for your class versus volunteering for the fire department? Yes, there is. So the numbers that we have, the statistics that are collected by the Corporation for National Community Service represent volunteering through or for an organization. Okay. So it doesn't capture more informal kinds of volunteering, helping behaviors. Um, They've added that in more recently because there was a lot of complaints because it makes some states look bad that they have a lower volunteering rate than others. But those states tend to have more informal helping going on. Oh, interesting. And is it – it seems like there – it almost seems like maybe this is all in formal. But a lot of churches used to promote more volunteering, do more volunteering. But if those are informal, they may not meet the numbers. 
Well, that, actually, that um, for. people volunteering for your church would count okay. as part of this. And w- the research also shows that people who volunteer for their church or are active in a church yeah. or even um, belong to a church yeah. are more likely to volunteer in their community for other organizations. Are they really now? And so, um, but overall, as the numbers dip, what do you attribute it to? I would say the most common reason is uh, that's reason that's preventable is problems within the organization. Mm-hmm. So a lot of changes in volunteering happen because people have different life events that come up, right? They have a yeah. baby, they graduate and move away, they, you know, things change in their lives and they just can't volunteer at that time. But the biggest preventable reason is that within the organization itself, they're not being managed as effectively as they could be. The volunteers tend to get frustrated, feel like their time's not yeah. being used well, and so they decide to quit volunteering or go somewhere else. Yeah, this isn't worth it. It's too much work to volunteer here because there's kind of this you do it for your heart, but then the last thing you want is some organizational system to get in the way. Exactly. And I always tell – I teach a class on volunteer management. I always tell my students, never waste a volunteer's time. That's their gift to you. Yeah. And so you want to make sure you're using it effectively. But one of the issues is that many of our charities and nonprofits, they don't have a lot of capacity. They tend to be very lean organizations. Yeah. Right. They don't have a lot of staff capacity. And um, you know, one of the things that they don't – aren't able to afford is a lot of professional development for staff to teach them how to effectively oh, manage and right. work with volunteers. And they're spread so thin that – and then – the, you get the blessing of these volunteers, but you don't have the skill set or the tools to manage them effectively. Right, exactly. And that can be a problem because then, you know, the volunteers feel like they're not being, they're not actually making a contribution. Yeah. Or sometimes it could just be other management problems in the organization. They feel oh, like it's wow. not being as effective as it could be. And, um, you know, they're not being listened to. And, mm-hmm. uh, and partly it's just that the staff in these organizations don't understand what makes volunteers tick. Yeah. don't understand why they're there. So they don't know how to meet the needs of the volunteers while also meeting the needs of the organization. It's, it's interesting because this is, it's not just free work they're getting, though, but they're also getting energy and hope and mission and purpose. All of these intangibles are tied up in the volunteering as well. Right, exactly. They bring volunteers. They also most volunteers tend to donate financially to the organizations right. they volunteer for. A lot of them will go out and um, do advocacy work for the organization, and through word of mouth, they tell other people about the organization, which is all great yeah. for the organization. Um, but you know, the that resource. You know, you mentioned that this is a free resource. Well, it's kind of not. It's not because just like you have to have people to manage your staff, mm-hmm. you have to have people that know how to manage your volunteers. There's still a human resource capital there that has to. Manage. Is it? Are there management programs for like? I mean, I know there's like managing a nonprofit organization, and you can get you can get degrees and special certificates in it. But it seems like there should be an entire field for managing volunteers. I definitely agree with that. There is there are certification programs. Okay. Um, it's interesting because probably in the last 30, 40, 50 years, professional fundraising has become uh, you know its own profession. Yeah. It's become much well, much better recognized and appreciated in the nonprofit sector. But professional volunteer management has yet to reach that stature. Interesting. Even though they're bringing in enormous resources to these organizations. Oh yeah. So it's still that's still something that's lacking. But there are some great certification programs out there. Overall, how does the United states add up when it comes to volunteering? Are we ahead of the curve? Are we behind the curve? Where do we fit? Overall, we are ahead of the curve in terms of our volunteering rate is pretty high. Um, So we're about 25% of Americans volunteer in any given year. The global average is 10%. um, So there's some countries with pretty low volunteering rates, although it's hard to collect good data on that in those countries. So we're we're doing pretty good. We're up there with countries like 
Canada and the Netherlands and the other ones with really high volunteering rates. Um, but I don't know that we're that great at doing much better than they are at managing our volunteers. Right. But globally, is it overall globally, it's dipping as well? People just aren't volunteering as much? Yes, I think it's a common problem everywhere. I think it's Netflix. Because <laughs> I, I love the idea that, I mean, if I could choose to go volunteer or go watch Netflix, Netflix is just easier. It is. It is. But it's not as fulfilling. Right. Volunteering is basically a leisure activity. Yeah. So you're competing for other things people could do in their leisure time. Do you um, – I mean I, I've seen incredible things in volunteering because I, like I went on an LDS mission, which is a whole volunteer activity, traveled abroad. But I've also seen fire departments that are run by volunteers – which with a camaraderie that's incredible, really, and it's there's a whole community within the community there. But I've seen um, just other, you know, a lot of uh, people volunteering for charities, other organizations. Does it, I guess, in the end, um, what would happen if all volunteering stopped? What do you sense would happen? I would say our nonprofit sector would fall apart. I mean, most nonprofits are actually entirely run by volunteers. Really? It's only a small percentage of nonprofits that really have a lot of money and have a lot of paid right. staff. And so um, all of these great things that are happening around us, I think, would, would well, by small large towns, Small towns wouldn't have a fire department. Right. It can't be run by one paid firefighter. Yeah, exactly. So that's scary. <laughs> it is a little scary. Especially if you see a trend of dropping. And I mean, I've even seen a trend in – it used to be even uh, – I think it was about George W. Bush's days where they started moving away from um, religious offering – like churches offering support in the community to more government support. It was just somewhere around there that there was a change and I thought, wow, that could be – really impactful because people volunteering to go support, you know, the inner city is different than just government subsidized or subsidies thrown at those things. Does, I mean, are policies impacting this? Are there federal policies, national policies that impact our volunteering? Do you see that impact? There's, there have been a lot of federal policies passed to try to encourage volunteering. And we do have one federal agency, the Corporation for National Community Service, right. whose job is to promote volunteerism and national service. Um, and, and I think they've done a great job, but it's just really hard for national federal policy to yeah. really move that volunteering rate um, without really infusing a lot more capacity into the local organizations to absorb these volunteers. Right. So, and that's what the local organizations say. They say, well, you know, some of them are like, we can't take anymore. We can't manage them. <laughs> yeah. So even if we bumped up the volunteering rate, it's not going to help them without more capacity. It's um, it's it's a funny thing. I know that the LDS Church has been putting a lot of time and money resources into building a website for service. So because a lot of people want to volunteer, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where to go get service activities, things that they can go do in the community. Where do people go? So if somebody right now is out there thinking, I, I think I need to volunteer a little bit more, how do you suggest they go about figuring out where to volunteer and where to give their resource, their time? I think um, there are quite a few volunteer matching websites out there. So um, Volunteer Match is yeah. one organization that has lists of opportunities. Um, the Corporation for National Community Service hosts a list okay. like that. Um, local, Many local United Ways 
will do that. Or many communities have a volunteering center who that kind of broker those relationships. Yeah. So I would look and see if there's a volunteering center. And then I think just word of mouth. Talk to the people you interact with and ask them which organizations they know about and respect. And that's a great starting place. Do, do, is there a difference? And do you see it in the research? Is there an advantage to being attached to the being attached to the the issue, being attached and deeply buying into whatever the charity is or whatever the issue is. Absolutely. I think people usually choose that mission first yeah. before they choose an organization. So do something you care about. Yeah. Do something you'll be passionate about. That's what makes volunteers really valuable to these organizations is right. that they're passionate about the mission. When you look at college students, because you get to do this every day, um, it seems like there was always a, a great spirit in the college area in the age group to want to volunteer and to get out there and make a difference. Um, do you still see that out there? Yeah, yeah. Our college students are really involved because in we our hear local millennials community. are like, Ugh. <laughs> but they are very charitable. They're very outwardly focused. They are actually. They're really. They want to give. They want to give back. They want to do meaningful work. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of our students on um, at UGA's campus are actively volunteering in the community. Our students in our master's program are involved with several local. In fact, they've even started some nonprofit organizations really? out of our um, master's program. That's pretty cool. So yeah, they're very very involved. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt. She is a professor of public administration at the University of Georgia, and we're discussing an article, How to Get More Americans to Volunteer. Uh, she co-authored that with uh, Professor Rob Christensen from Brigham Young University. Didn't co-author it, but he was involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about, too, when you I mean, volunteering, again, it doesn't have to come from a religious background. It could be anyone, and you can volunteer anywhere. Um, if Overall, do you see a, a certain area that we might need to push more people to volunteer in? Where does volunteerism need to catch on still? That's a really great question. I think a lot of people volunteer for organizations that they have some kind of connection to. So, right. for example, many parents volunteer for organizations that their children are part of, right. which is great. Yeah. Um, I think probably areas where we could see more volunteerism is serving people who aren't like ourselves. So oh, yeah. maybe you know some middle-class Americans serving people who live in poverty or the homeless um, because it's not as natural a fit. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not, it's right. not something you necessarily encounter in your day-to-day life. So I think looking beyond the boundaries of our day-to-day life would be a a great place to look to volunteer. I mean, um, uh, we've seen a lot here even in Utah, too, of um, with refugee families and as refugees, more and more refugees are coming in to be able to serve outside of your community and get into a refugee community. How powerful could that be to start to create bigger changes in this country? Yeah, absolutely. Just looking looking around and seeing where there's need. You know, and some, some needs are out there and they're important, but, you know, it's hard to get people to volunteer. So, for example, like in the 1980s and 1990s, it was really hard to get people to volunteer for AIDS-related organizations because there was a big stigma around that. But there was also a huge need and a lot of people suffering. Well, and by the way, the more that you would get in there, the faster you would clarify the differences that and what's real about what was going on with HIV and AIDS and what wasn't real. Exactly. It breaks down the fears, doesn't it? Right. And it's a way for us to learn more about the other people that are here in our country with us. Does there, what about like um, going and doing volunteering abroad? Is that 
I mean, I, I know people now that do it as their that's their summer vacation. It's their trip. They actually plan to take their entire family to go do service abroad. Is that is that as necessary, or do we suggest they stay more in the United States? Does it matter? Just volunteer. That it, that's also a good question. I think just volunteer. You know, wherever you can go, there's there's needs on our back doors, right? Yeah. Right. Right. In We've front got a of lot us. of stuff going on here. Exactly. And you know, I mean, it's great to also go somewhere else and volunteer. But there's, mm-hmm. I think, if we opened our eyes, there's plenty of need in our own communities that we just don't see. Is do you sense? Because I one thing I would worry about is growing an institution that was so dependent on volunteering that I couldn't sustain it myself. Is there a problem? I mean. Because I, I always think we need more parents volunteering in the school, and we absolutely do. But then we also have to sustain it even if parents didn't come in, don't we? I mean, don't we have to also be able to sustain it? Yeah, well, and I think that's why we want to help our our charities and nonprofits to have a little bit more capacity, right? A little more financial capacity so that they have some staff so that there is that continuity. Yeah, they can keep it going. Right. But we also do want – I mean, I think there's no problem no. with having organizations that are – where volunteers are the backbone. So another example would be CASA, court-ordered right. – uh, court-appointed special advocates. Yeah. That, that Their program is entirely delivered by volunteers. It's volunteers that go out and work with these children and collect the information information to take back to the courts, the people, the staff people are the ones managing those volunteers. So it's really the, the government kind of ma- – or is it the government or the the organization manages the volunteers, but the volunteers are doing the majority of the work? Absolutely. And there's yeah. many organizations like that. That's a great way. That's a, that's a great model, right? Because then – and like CASA is an example and I've spoken for them and done some work with them where it's so motivated by mission and purpose because these people are changing the lives of kids, true blue Horrible lives are being impacted that you can stay motivated if you had good management like that. Exactly. And they do. They invest a lot in training the volunteers, training the staff to work with volunteers. They give them a lot of support. And so they're able to recruit and retain volunteers. I mean, they're always looking for more. Yeah, absolutely. But they, you know, it's really remarkable how long people will stick with and continue to volunteer for that program. And it's because they invest in those volunteers. Oh, yeah. How pow- and then, by the way, it just gives great resources down the road, too. I mean, part of this is it seems like as – I mean, volunteers are valuable at all ages, but as, as you're an aging community, too, with the baby boomers, that could be a perfect time to go get some other life experience and and not have to be there forever, but just go volunteer for a few years learning another skill, another trade, another idea. Absolutely. The baby boomers have a lot to offer. And there's a lot of talk in the research community about um, kind of productive aging and active aging. And this is a great way for our seniors to stay active, to be involved, to share their wisdom and experience, to give back to their communities and to not just be at home and, and, and be disconnected from their communities. Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, what else should we know? Is there anything else we all need to make sure we're paying attention to when it comes to volunteering and uh, and what should we do today? Uh, I would say go out and volunteer if you're not already doing it, but find other ways to support local charities and nonprofit organizations. And unfortunately, we all hear those stories yeah. where there was some organization that did something wrong and then 
I think we're sometimes more reluctant to give to others. Right. But just get to know the charities in your in your local area and find ways to support them financially with your time, with advocacy, or even with professional expertise that you might have to offer them. Yeah. And you don't just have to volunteer to do, deliver programs. You can volunteer by giving management advice right. or free marketing Doing what advice. You do or, well. Yeah, or that's pro bono cool. legal work. Yeah. So just find a way to give back and to help the community. And that's volunteering as well. That's good stuff. Absolutely. Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt, thank you so much for your time, your insights. Again, Rebecca is an associate professor in the Department of Public Administration and Policy at the University of Georgia. Uh, She received her Ph.D. from Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs and, of course, a master's and bachelor's from BYU. Thank you so much for being here. Let me be here. Thanks for being here. Good stuff. We'll continue the journey. Do a little Coach's Corner up next uh, as we continue to discuss how we can be co-parents at even a higher level. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Um, we we all have to make it through life, right? And if if you're so fortunate and blessed that you have a spouse that you are working together with as you co-parent your kids, um, boy, are you lucky because many don't. And, um, you know, I was raised with a single parent in the home and it it actually it's hard, right? It makes things a little more complicated. And if you're not careful, the kids could start leading everything. <laughs> and so we want to learn to work together. Last hour, we talked about some some keys for all of us to be better co-parents. One is to simply, uh, I remember the fact that we got to be on the same page. So part of the co in in, um, co-parenting would be communicating and cooperating. We got to talk. We got to ask some questions. We've got to be pretty clear about what kind of impact we want to have on our kids and what roles we want to play and what are you willing to sacrifice as a parent. I've noticed a little bit more and more in our uh, in our parenting that it's it's a little sometimes it's we don't want to sacrifice our lives like you know we don't think our kids should impact our lives maybe as much as they do but that seems crazy right because they do impact and they should impact and uh sometimes the reason why we love our kids so absolutely much is because we have to give so much to help them have a healthier life. Another tool that I was thinking that we could use to be better co-parents is to start leveraging each other's strengths, right? Most people like to do things that they're good at or, or that they're better at. And so maybe one of the things we could do as co-parents is to let our spouse feel like they're good at some things. If if one of your kids is really good at putting the, or one of your, uh, if your spouse is really good at putting the kids to bed and they do that so well, then let's let them do it. Let them, I mean, some are just really good at making memories. Some are really good at telling stories. Some are really good at uh, calming the kids down or, um, you know, waking them up. Let's find what our partner does really well and then actually hold it up as a strength instead of just focusing on a task. Uh, Sometimes it might be great to let the task be driven by who has the better strength in that area. And it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that you know that's the only person that can do it, or that the other should feel bad about that. But 
I just I've I felt like I had a special skill as a father of um, helping figure out what's going on with a fussy kid and either distracting him or changing the mood or changing the situation. So I that's what I would do. My wife was incredible at being more structured and organized. So she would she would create the organization. She would help us create the structure. I might step in and then do what I can do well, um, sometimes just to allay the guilt. My job, middle of the night, get up. She had them all day. She uh, fed them. She did all of these things. So once we were bottle feeding, I could do it. It was my job. And I loved that. I loved knowing that I had a role that I was uniquely kind of gifted at. But um, another thing that might help us is while we're while we're seeing our partner's strengths, we might want to remember that it, we really need to hear four positives to every negative. And if you want your partner to be more involved in the parenting, then you probably ought to overwhelm your partner with the positivity. Find what they do do well that really does amaze you, and let's start being very sincere and 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 really appreciate what they're doing. Don't just keep treating this like, well, yeah, it's the least you can do. Um, we, we all need to be involved and feel like we matter. Also, another thing that helps us parenting in our parenting is to use more routines to eliminate the reminders. Sometimes you don't need to keep harping or, neg- or negatively talking about what has to be done now if we just have a, a set routine. The benefit of routines is that they can happen the same way every day, every month, every year as we're growing up. And kids like routines because then they know how the pattern goes. So another name for a routine would be a ritual or a habit. Um, and the, the, let's, get, let's get a set routine for how we go to bed. Let's get a set routine for how we have family time at night. Let's get a set kind of daddy time ritual or a mother time ritual or uh, whatever. Just get a ritual set so that we can start to uh, to get it systematized. Then it's not a, you know, a crapshoot and a free-for-all every single time we have to figure out the night. The night should not need to be recreated and reconstructed if we could just create a, a fairly simple routine. And again, I have six kids. I understand routines change. And I understand during baseball season, the routine may differ a little bit or during football season or, you know, during dance, uh, when we're doing our dance contests and things like that, it's things change and rituals are powerful. So um, maybe we could try to create a few more rituals. And remember one other thing, as you're trying to work with your partner, and co-parent, remember that the apple does not fall far from the tree. So the more that you understand your spouse and their approach to life, it means the more you're going to understand your child. Getting to really get clarity with your spouse is going to help you get clarity with your kids. They share the same DNA. So instead of just offloading and being frustrated and just seeing your partner as a crazy anomaly – Sometimes I found the best thing that motivates me is to see my partner as um, really the the source upstream of my children. So a lot of my children's behaviors might flow from what they've seen me do and they've seen my spouse do. So you don't have to be frustrated necessarily because your partner is different. What you could do is start to see that I need to understand my partner better so I can understand my kids better. And I'm going to invest. Sometimes it's easier to invest in my kids 
um, than it sometimes feels like with your partner. But there's hope because any struggle I, I can master with my wife uh, will help me be able to better master it with my children. It's not – that's why divorce doesn't always work because in the end, a lot of the traits that, that frustrated you about your ex-spouse still lives and dwells inside the hearts and minds of your children. Anyway, basic ideas for co-parenting. Remember that uh, you can learn how to deal with your kids as you learn how to work with your spouse, work with more routines, sincerely leverage each other's strengths, and communicate, communicate, communicate. Co-parenting, it's the way we get through life and uh, still feel like it's a blessing to have these little gifts from heaven, these kids. We'll continue the journey up next. We'll be talking about midlife crises and how to handle them. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you feel like, uh, you know, your midlife, your mid-crisis, your mid-professional uh, career, and yeah, you're not motivated, you don't have as much interest, you, you feel like, I don't know what it is, I just need a red Ferrari. I think a red Ferrari would make me happier. You might be going through a midlife crisis. So we uh, w- wanted to go back and revisit uh, Dr. Hans Schwant. It was an interview we did. He's a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Center for Health and Well-Being. And uh, he was walking us through um, some keys, some information that's important that we all know about our midlife crisis. And I, uh, in the interview, I asked, how do we deal with a midlife crisis when it's happening? So I think first, like uh, what my data tells or what the research tells us, what happens when people, how do people usually get out of the midlife um, crisis, like the time of double misery, how we, how we uh, framed it, yeah. like the, where we are hit by disappointments and evaporating aspirations. And so what we see is that it's at the bottom of the U-curve. It's like when people are like the most depressed, essentially, like in their mid-40s, mid-50s, um, that's when expectations about the future align with current life satisfaction. So people don't expect further improvements in their life, and they come to terms with how their life uh, played out. Huh. So that's an important aspect. And another important aspect is that brain studies have shown that the elderly brain learns to feel less regret about mischances in the past. Oh, really? Okay, good. That's great news. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's something I think like uh, younger people uh, could learn from the elderly. And for example, there has been like this study, uh, a famous study published in Science, where they played games with young and with um, 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 elderly people, um, where they were allowed to stop the game whenever they wanted, but then there was a profit that was foregone that they didn't get by stopping too early. And then so after they stopped, they showed the subjects which profits, profit they didn't make. And the young brain was outrageous about the missed <laughs> chance. They were really angry, and you saw the heartbeat going um, up, and all kind of like body reactions responded. The elderly brain, there was almost no reaction at all, wow. except for a subset of people, of depressed elderly people, like elderly people with mental health problems. They had the same brain response as the young people. Interesting. And so there's a strong um, evidence suggesting that the elderly brain learns to adapt and learns to feel less regret about the past. And so this combination of 
accepting life how it is, coming to terms with life how it has played out, and feeling less regret about the past, this is what makes life satisfaction increase again. Is it is the feeling less regret? Is it a chemical thing, or is it an actual learned kind of cognitive view of life? So, um, what the study suggests is that part of it might really be something in, wired in the brain, like how the brain changes. Oh, because, interesting. Um, it could be that there was like a deeper philosophical reasoning in these games, but these games were quite plain. It was really just like, are you angry or upset about like that you didn't get right. additional dollars or not? Um, but having said that, this, of course, is something that we can learn, or this is something that we can yeah. um, um, uh, implement and, 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 and try to 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 also maybe yeah teach to ourselves. I mean, just the idea too of, I mean, w- whether it's just biology or whatever it is, I guess wisdom, um, coming to terms too with your life, that's a big deal. And do you, do you have any ideas on what works to help us come to terms with it, like to process it and to maybe just see the good of it? Mm, I mean, maybe we should first think about like why there is something like regret. And of course we see that Regret is very important, for example, if you're young and you're studying and then you get a bad grade. Right. It's probably good that you regret and you're not like, oh, whatever, can't change it now anymore. Because you do can change it, right? You, you can make improvements right. and, and learn more for the next exam. But, of course, if most of the paths in your life have already been set and, 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 and there's not a lot you can change, maybe it doesn't make sense to think about all the chances that you might have missed all the things that haven't turned out as nice sure. as you thought. Sure. I mean, I guess that's just, that's survival, right? We, we need to feel regret so we take advantage of life. Exactly. And also probably that's what we talked about earlier, this over-optimism of the young is probably also like a survival or uh, like a, 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 a kind of evolutionary benefit, but then it turns against us in midlife um, when we see that not everything turned out as nicely as we planned. So I guess the best way would be don't get rid of the over-optimism when you're young, but then learn to, to uh, uh, um, live better with maybe some disappointments and live better with expectations that are aligned a little bit downwards mm-hmm. and see this as a temporal and, bi- um, and, and kind of very normal developmental stage in our lives. Yeah, and then I guess don't immediately go buy a Porsche when you're in the middle <laughs> Of your... Exactly, or the same like with a job. I mean, given that all of this seems a rather natural, normal development, if, let's say, the um, burnt-out Wall Street manager was, uh, was to change seats with a frustrated NGO activist, right. I mean, neither of the two would probably be happier in the end, right? Yeah. Or like, think of like those who um, suddenly think, oh, not everything in my marriage has been as nice as I thought, so then... Uh, they go for a younger partner, you know, who in, in the end, there's very little to share with and all this, the the investments and trust and like getting to know each other of the whole past, all of this is lost. The same for jobs, of course. Yeah. Right? All the expertise that you gained um, will be lost. And um, if that's just a temporary um, disappointment that you have, maybe it's not the best idea to really uh, yeah, change your entire life. Which is why I think it's so valuable to have this conversation because 
just just getting into the psyche of everybody that the midlife crisis is that it's that weird moment where our life disappointment meets evaporating aspiration. Yeah. It's normal. It's 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 it ought to be anticipated. Yeah. I think ideally the ideal thing would be even if we would get over the term crisis, yeah. and maybe I just would would call it like the times of midlife discontent or mm-hmm. midlife reflection or these kind of terms. Yeah. Um, because it's really not something that, that is so dramatic. Right. And also that's something that I often heard and that you often see also in the data. It's not something that just like strikes one day and is gone the next day. It's really like a longer process. It can take many years. Mm. And this is not what people usually uh, have in mind when they hear crisis. Right. No, exactly. So. I mean, it really is just the midlife reality. It's just... You you become your your life becomes more real. The the exactly, and that you can see, and this is also what many people to me in response to the to the Harvard Business Review article is that those who are out of the crisis they said that they actually feel that they grew during that mm. time. Yeah, that they are like became more reflected, and I think that's a very important takeaway that this is kind of a it's a period of t- of your life where. You reflect, you reevaluate your life, and maybe you see that your expectations have been too high in the past, but you also maybe see a little bit like your strengths, your weaknesses. Maybe there are new areas of expertise that you could develop in your job, or maybe there are like new ways to enrich your family or to, to, yeah, to yeah. rebuild um, confidence with your partner. And so all of this can have a very positive side, but certainly not if we just like neglect it as a as a as a crisis as, right. just, as something silly yeah. and as something people feel they have to be ashamed of. That again was Hans Schwant, uh, who is a, a professor uh, doing postdoctoral research work at Princeton University Center for Health and Wellbeing, teaching us about our midlife crisis. And uh, we're all going through it one way or another, uh, but we can manage our life a lot better, staying focused and connected to purpose and passion and our principles. That's uh, our number two of the program, More Fun, straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, by the way, if you missed any of the previous hours, go check us out. Go to BYURadio.org. Go to uh, any any podcast download site basically yeah they've got that on google play yeah i mean i could i could list iTunes. a million but itunes tune in stitcher we're everywhere or just go to your um your your favorite alexa device and say alexa play the matt townsend show podcast and boom it'll come up or just play the matt townsend show and if we're live it'll come up or play byu radio so many ways to get connected and a lot to talk about today. We'll be talking with Dr. Paul Jenkins, um, uh, also, you know, our good friend that always comes on the show to kind of walk us through new ideas, new information for how to live longer, love stronger and lead a healthier life. We'll get to that. Plus, of course, our good friends from BYU Sports Nation. We'll find out what's coming up on their show. Do a little hero segment of the day. Uh, we like to get into a tiny bit of news, um, but 
I don't know. It almost feels like the bromance is over between President Macron and President Trump. No, I just think there's limits to the bromance. There's lots of – there was really a hug, a kiss, mm. uh, hand grooming, hand-holding. Hand yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were buddies, Planting besties. of trees. Yeah, they planted a tree together. They aerated the White House lawn with uh, – High heels with from their high wives. High heels yeah. from their wives. It's like appropriate shoes for walking in grass. It's not high heels. Uh, how would you know? You can just see that it's not – it's awkward. You probably need to wear more of a flat, <laughs> a closed toe. Are you actually giving us – Fashion advice? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, he's right. He's totally right. If you try, that, to, wear, if you try to wear was... heels on grass, it's practically immobilizing. In the ten and a half years of doing radio, yep. that right there was about as weird as I've felt. Really? Me talking about high heels? Yeah. And, right. and giving advice. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know you're way into fashion. Right. I mean, I know you can't get enough of Kate Middleton mm. and uh, what's her name? Mer- Markle. What's her name? Megan Markle. Megan Markle. Right. She apparently has strong purse game. <laughs> what I so heard. does that mean she can hit you with a purse? No, she has a favorite brand, and people send, you know, they like that, so they want to yeah. look into it for some reason. Wow. And people were apparently just, just enamored with Melania Trump's hat the other day. That was a great hat. A white hat, kind of low on the brim. And then at the official, what, the state dinner, she had this other kind of sequined-looking flashy looking dress that she yeah. wore and the problem is is apparently the french first lady is also a uh fashionista i yeah, guess of yeah. some level so i think melania feels like there's a little bit of a you know friendly competition going on well you want to look good f- with the french because you know they are into fashion right but- they have access to all the best designers well, and we experience this here too every time i bring in a new purse then terry brings in a new purse oh, and there you just go always yeah. one-upping yeah this is a lot of competition for this. That's great. Uh, what'd you call it? Um, purse game? Purse game. Show, Meghan Markle in another article I saw has strong coat game. Wow. Yeah. What? Again, where do you get your news? Um, this is what we asked you at your interview. We, we follow BuzzFeed on our wow. show Twitter page. And so when I roll through, there's like these random BuzzFeed articles and quizzes and stuff that pop up. And I just yeah. sort of move on. Yeah. Yeah. Right now I'm trying to avoid all the spoilers for the new Avenger movie. Don't need to know what happened until I see it Saturday. Well, you know that they all die. No, just one, but I don't want to know who. Well, it's Mothman. He's a DC character from Batman, but thanks for trying. Okay, why, again, do you know that? That's just... It's in the Lego movie. And why do you know that? Because I watched the Lego movie with my son multiple times. Yeah, I'm going to, I bet you didn't. <laughs> I did. Apparently, just... Infinity War is getting amazing reviews. Yeah. I'm actually pretty excited. It's too bad they all die. That's what I find sad. It's tough because you have to avoid the reviewers who are kind of nerds for it all because mm. they get overly excited. You the want like nerd viewer. So I just stay away from it because I don't really – nothing anyone says is going to keep me from seeing it. So why should I read a review? It's not like I need a recommendation, right? I've watched right. 18 of these movies. If you're going to watch it anyway, right? Yeah. Then. Man. All right. Well, let's get to something else you should be working on. Um, How about the headlines? Have you got any of those for us? The uh, EPA agency administrator, Scott Pruitt, isn't going down without a fight, apparently. He is uh, he's had a fraught couple of weeks plagued by numerous ethics scandals that are sure to be a focus when he testifies right now before Congress. But he's uh, ready to tell lawmakers, you know, they always always put out their pre-prepared statement. 
where they just sit there and read the whole thing, but they give it to everybody on the count on the panel before they walk in the door. Right. The media gets a hold of it because either they give it to the media or there's a leak, whatever. And so why do they read it verbatim? Just what is to, the big deal? Just somebody type it in later. We are, I mean, if you want to read it, it's there. But in there, he uh, the New York Times says that uh, the way he's ready to tell lawmakers that there's plenty of blame to go around for all of all of the mistakes that have been attributed to him. Yeah. Pruitt and his staff had reportedly prepared a list of responses to, quote, hot topics that may come up during the hearing with the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee and the House Appropriations Committee. If lawmakers ask about his taking lavish first-class flights that racked up massive taxpayer-funded travel bills, for example, he plans to say that his security team advised him to do so. My security team told me to you know, book first-class flights. And he also has to point out that he's been flying coach more recently. Oh, that's like so good when of people him. started accusing me of flying yeah. first class, and I started yeah. flying coach. Come on, but can you? I mean, I feel bad for him. In response to questions about controversial raises for his favorite aides, he'll say that somebody else handled staffing logistics, that gave someone a fifty-eight thousand dollar raise and somebody eighty, somebody else a thirty-five thousand dollar raise. Okay, yeah. yeah. The document's veracity was not disputed by the EPA, the Times reports, but it's possible that Pruitt's answers will change between the time of the talking points and the actual hearing, which is Mm. going on now. Okay. So I think it's a good approach. You're the head of the agency, and you're going to say it's somebody else's fault. Well, that's the benefit of being the head of the agency. You always get to blame someone else. Is that how it works? Well, then you're supposed to say, I mean, I am the head, so I will take full responsibility. But Billy's the one that did it. Okay. (laughs) Democrats have a real shot of picking off three Republican Senate seats in November, according to a new Axios survey monkey poll, my favorite kind of poll. Yes. The show, it shows the Democrats beating all three Republicans vying for open seats in Arizona, ousting Senator Dean Heller in Nevada by six percentage points, and leading the GOP candidate in Tennessee, Representative Marsha Blackburn, by a statistically insignificant one point. The polls provide new evidence that Republicans hold on the Senate may not be as solid as it once looked, says the website Uh-oh. Axios. Which everyone's pointing out, but, you know, things change. No, I think it's all hype. Uh, the Senate has scheduled a final confirmation vote for CIA Director Mike Pompeo early this uh, this afternoon. Four Democrats and Senator Angus Keene of Maine is an independent, uh, saying they'll join all Republicans in voting for Pompeo, which basically makes his confirmation all but assured. He then will leave for a week-long recess. Uh, Senate leaves for the recess, and if he's confirmed, Pompeo will immediately jump a flight to Brussels because there's a NATO summit, and uh, we're supposed to have our Secretary of State there. Okay. So he's like, can you get this done so I can you know, jump the flight for the weekend? I got stuff to do. 6,000 teachers will take to the streets today an unprecedented strike action that will close the majority of schools in Arizona and Colorado. The grassroots uh, hashtag Red for Ed movement is demanding a 20% pay raise for teachers as well as around a billion more to uh, 20 billion more dollars to bring school funding back up to pre-recession levels. Between 30,000 and 50,000 teachers clad in red are expected to march through Phoenix to rally at the Arizona State Capitol, while in Colorado, more than 10,000 teachers are expected to demonstrate. It says here more than 840,000 Arizona students are expected to be out of school today. Really? So, snow day, but it's Arizona, so. Snowflake day. Snowflake day, that's right. Apparently, Kim Jong-un will become take a giant leap from north and south when he becomes the first North Korean leader to walk to the southern section of the border. He's going to cross the border to talk to the president of South Korea. Really? Or at least come close. 
That's a big deal. The two will then hold talks in the border village. I don't know the name of it, but I've heard it's made famous by the show MASH, because they talk about it yeah. a lot in MASH, and they are expected to focus on bringing an end to the North Korea's uh, weapons program. They're going to plant a tree together. It'll be wonderful to review this some is troops. Exciting. Yeah. I'm telling you, stuff's happening. Another note, Ford is going to kill the Fusion Taurus and Fiesta cars. I mean, but, but the headline is, Ford's getting rid of all of their cars. They'll keep two. But two. They'll keep an Echo Sport, which is a new little hatchback thing they yeah. come out with, and the Mustang. And then they're moving to utility. More vehicles. SUVs, more trucks. Which I heard they may be bringing out the Bronco. Yes. I read, I read somewhere How they're re- cool bringing that back that? out. Yeah, I want to see a Bronco. Why? Well, because I miss Bronco Mendenhall. Or, I mean, the last Bronco was the white Bronco, and OJ was in the back of it. I know, it, but he nailed little... it. Okay, okay. Finally, imagine hearing a story about a 12-year-old boy who managed to make his way to Bali, Indonesia, without his parents knowing. Oh, he's in trouble. That was a situation when one Australian mom found herself in a heated argument with her 12-year-old son. He borrowed the family credit card, ticketed, uh, tricked his grandmother into giving him his passport, and booked himself a flight to Bali. What the boy drew, they made up a name for him because, you know, he's a... Underage, yeah, right. so Drew, it's a name. Lacked in life experience, he makes up for in smarts. He figured out that he could fly on multiple Australian airlines alone without a letter from mom and dad. The only boxes he needed to tick was having a valid passport and a student ID. So after telling his parents he was off to school, he packed up a backpack along with a scooter and took uh, took a train to the airport. He checked in through the self-service checkouts, those little kiosks yeah. you can do. Made his way through the security gates and waited to board his flight to Perth, which he then connected with another flight to Bali. Once wow. in Perth, he claims no one asked him while he was alone. So then he, he got on the next plane, flew to Bali, right? What and he a said kid. He went from the airport to a hotel. A, it was a, a four-star hotel <laughs> he had booked, right? He was there for several days. By the time his parents had reported him missing, he was uh, living up life in this luxury hotel, having a good time. Once the boy <laughs> was located, he was immediately flown back home. The airport, the airlines are uh, re- what? Reevaluating what? their processes for how they allow underage children to well, travel. Can't you now just see him when his parents pick him up? Like, what? You told me to do something with my life. I did, with your credit card. See, Mom, you got to let me play Fortnite. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Like, That's seriously. And I guess his parents paid for the whole thing. You'd think they would have really picked up on, up. like, what's going on in Bali? Why is... Where are these charges for airline tickets? What's up with that? Who's eating all the nuggets in Bali? <laughs> That's crazy. 12 years old. Wow. Good job. I mean, it's be careful, son, but way to show some initiative. Up next, speaking of initiative, Dr. Paul Jenkins will be joining us, and uh, we're going to pick his brain, see what we can do to be healthier and happier. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're back with Dr. Paul Jenkins. Uh, Dr. Paul is, by the way, you can find him at drpauljenkins.com, but uh, he is the shrink who expands your life. You know it. You are like, um, I think we got it, you are like, uh, you're like one of those little sponges that are really dry, and then you pour a little water on them, and you just start to expand. It grows and grows. Not, I'm not saying you are, you're small and dry. No, I'm more like the water. That's a good point. Yeah, you're you're wet and you fit everywhere. 
That's, that's going to break down at some point. It already did. Uh, he also is the, the host of his own podcast, Live on Purpose Radio. It has a on television on YouTube. You can find Live on Purpose TV, mm-hmm. where every day he drops a new video. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. Do you not understand that that's not the way you do it because that's a lot of work? Well, I think you're on the radio every day. Yeah. So there you go. Good point. Yeah. That's really good but point. But you know what? I film one day a month. Knock them all out yeah. in one day, and then I'm done for the month. But aren't you then a vegetable for a few days? <laughs> Just a big, mushy I'm getting used to sponge. it, I know. You yeah. build that muscle. But there's you? a whole process. You know, you, you create – you know this. Yeah. You know, you have to curate the content first. Right. And but so a lot of it's already process. in you. You just kind of need yeah. something to – Get well, it out of you. 23 years of clinical practice, I learned a few things. Well, plus just your own mental health issues. Uh, and there's all that personal experience. All of that. Yeah. As well. Right? Which is why you're talking to us today about shy kids. Yeah. Because a lot of times kids, uh, we, we brand them as shy. They just might be sensitive. Oh, there's a they lot might of be things anxious. that contribute. Yeah. And you look at our society, Matt. We are so digital now. Oh, yeah. That we don't always even have to interact with people. True. You, you go to the grocery store. They've got this new thing at our local grocery store where you pick up this device as you enter the store and you scan all of your stuff and bag it as you're shopping and then you just you leave. Really? You so don't, you don't have to wait in a line. You don't have to interact with anyone. It's all electronic. Isn't that heavenly? It's all digital. Well, yeah. That's what I Terry mean, was saying. It's just heaven. There's some real advantages to this, but it also it, it changes the way we interact with people. Yeah. So in our generation, Matt, as we uh, kind of had to a yeah. little more, um, we have this expectation in our mind that our kids are going to have the same kind of experiences that we had when really the world has changed. Right. And so they're not having the same learning experiences that we had as we were growing up. And they don't necessarily learn the skill sets that are associated with proper social interaction. Right. Does I mean I I don't know if we ever labeled I mean I guess you could get labeled as shy or quiet. Mm-hmm. Is there any benefit to calling your child shy? Or should you just kind of hold it up that you're just different your way? You know what? It's just another label. Yeah. And you make a really important point here because there's a lot of other things that might show up as being shyness. I mean, there's depression. There's anxiety. There's autistic spectrum. There's all kinds of diagnostic categories that might present as shyness. Right. And then there's just the kid who is more socially reticent or the one who's been trained and taught and educated to not interact with people because mom's going to do it. No, right. Um, I know. I knew a guy that for sure uh, we thought was shy, um, also mm-hmm. may have been on the spectrum with Asperger's. Brilliant, though, mm-hmm. but grew up with Chinese parents that had moved to the United States. Yeah. And a lot of it was just cultural. Sure. He just everything was new. And he was mm-hmm. super respectful, like the Chinese culture many times are. And what we were interpreting as shy was just his, respectful. His version of being respectful. Isn't that amazing? Right. But and we look at him like, oh, look at that guy's so shy. Yeah. So um, as parents, yeah. 
I think it's important to keep our mind open to, huh, there might be a lot of different things that contribute to what it is that I'm seeing. And being open also to what is my example Mm. to my child. Yeah. Because I honestly, I have some parents show up at my office who are pretty shy. Yeah. And they're like, why is my kid so shy? I don't understand why he's so shy. I don't get it. Do you notice, too, that sometimes having like an anxious mother, Mm -hmm. um, they bring their kids in for you to fix them. Because for anxiety, for anxiety, and the irony is the the kid. A lot of what the kid is is just his mother, and oh, she's so yeah. sensitive to it that she mm-hmm. kind of is projecting social mirroring on him. This idea that he's broken. I had an interview just uh, very recently. I think it was in the last couple of weeks on my podcast with Larry Bellotta, and he works with couples all the time. Yeah. Um, to help them save their marriage. In fact, his website is youcansavethismarriage.com. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, he talks about programming and how as little kids we get programmed, trained, taught, educated, but programming is the word that he used. Think about English, for example. We're, we're talking English today without even thinking about we're speaking English. Right, right. It's just programmed in, and that's what our mind is naturally going to go to. Because that's the programming. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the right language or the only language, certainly. It's, it, it's just the one we're programmed yeah, with. Yeah, it's, it's the one we know. So kids are going to become programmed by whatever their, their parents, their environment is, is programming into them. Yeah. And it's not necessarily right or wrong. So let's keep that open. What if it's a cultural thing? What if it's a, a family pattern. Yeah, it's just a dynamic. That's just being programmed into this kid. Now, being aware of it puts us in a position of choice. That's cool. And and part of I guess you want to be aware of it. So if if you see your child is res, reticent, mm-hmm. hesitant to get out there, um I mean, you don't want to create a problem by labeling it and saying it's something, but you probably want to investigate right. what's going on, right? Because what I would worry about is and I have family that they all had anxiety, and honestly, I don't think any of them knew it. Mm-hmm. Like we've had generations of people with anxiety, right. and none of them knew it. Uh-huh. But they just—they would never—they didn't want to go to church because it's too stressful. They didn't want to yeah. do public stuff. They didn't do this. They did, and sometimes I think to manage the stress, they would drink. They'd—they'd they'd do things they could to medicate. Sure. So. We just, I think part of it's just everybody needs to know who they are and know what mm-hmm. they're working with and figure out. Is this a problem? Is this an opportunity? And it, there's a little bit of a paradox here, yeah. Matt, because self-awareness is really a powerful concept. It, it puts you in a position of choice. We've right. talked before about metacognition, right. that process of thinking about your own thinking. Yeah. Self-awareness, where you become more tuned in to what's driving you, what's making you click. And as a psychologist, I mean, that's my that's your that's love. My job. Yeah. That's my work. It's what I do. Um, what if we could all individually and within ourselves become a little more self-aware? Now, here's the paradox, though, because if we're focused on ourselves. Yeah, you're not. We're going to create some anxiety. That's right. You're, you're, eventually, your arrows have got to get out of you. Well, think about, think about the shyness issue. Yeah. Who is the focus? Me. It's about me. Right. Right. What do other people think about me? What do I think about myself? That's a self-focus that creates anxiety. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we get to teach our kids 
is that they get to choose where their focus is. And they don't get to choose it until they're aware of it. Right. So raising that awareness, okay, who are we focused on right now? And there, there's a quadrant system that I teach where if you think about um, how I feel versus how you feel. Yeah. Okay. And then on the other dimension is about me or about you. Yeah. When you overlay those two dimensions, then we have four quadrants. How I feel about me. Yeah, that's cool. How you feel about me. Both of those are going to create some anxiety. Right, absolutely. As long as it's about me. And then moving to the other two quadrants, how I feel about you. Now, that can be a little critical and judgmental. Mm -hmm. But here's our power quadrant. How you feel about yourself. If you go to that quadrant, shyness is not an issue. Yeah. Anxiety is not a problem. See, because it's not about me and how I feel is only secondary. Yeah. So I call this the influence quadrant. That's cool. It's a powerful way to teach children to pay attention to where their focus is and helping them to start focusing on how other people feel about themselves. Yeah, that's powerful. And then you you help someone feel better about themselves than you actually they, – they feel better or different about you. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah. That's, so that's where your influence comes from. You get into that quadrant and people will love you. Yeah. But if you do it for that purpose, then, yeah, it's not that it. quadrant. Right. Now you're focused on how other people feel about you. Yeah, and exactly. So it's, it's a little slippery that way. The other thing that I found that is really helpful with kids is to get very simple, clear family expectations and rules that support – healthy psychological development. Good. And there's only three. What are they? So rule number one. Yeah. Respect yourself and others. Respect yourself and others. And some people leave the self part out of that. You know, you need to respect others. Well, how often are our kids saying things like, oh, I'm not good enough or I'm right. too stupid. I can't do that. That's not respectful. That's violating our family rule. So true. It's a little different way of looking at it. Yeah. The second rule also has to do with respect, but it's property. Respect, property. Kids get a sense of confidence as they take responsibility and stewardship over things. Yeah. And that teaches them some important life skills, too. That's why a dog or a car or a bicycle matters to a kid. Yeah. It's something they can be in charge of. Be in charge of and have responsibility for. Mm -hmm. So it builds their confidence and their self-esteem, but it also helps them to overcome this negative self-focus that creates the shyness that we started talking about in the first place. Now, you look at those two rules, Matt, and we've pretty much got it covered. Yeah. Respect, respect. Respect yourself and others. Respect property. What else would you want? Well, I've thrown this third one in for parents (laughs) to cover everything else. Do what I say and go to bed early. Basically. (laughs) Cooperate and obey. And there's a distinction between cooperation and obedience. You should cooperate with anyone who's yeah. asking you to do something that's right and reasonable. Right. That doesn't violate Let's the other do it two together. rules. Let's, yeah. You should obey those who have appropriate authority over you. Yeah. So, parents, that's you for your kids, but it also includes law enforcement, community, um, school teacher. personnel. Right. Uh, people in your congregation or community. But, but you don't have, have to obey anything that's not respectful of others and yourself. Right. And you don't have to obey your little sister. Right. 
but you should cooperate with her. Yeah, and respect her. Yeah. That's what's cool about it. So, and if I don't like what you're asking me to do, then let's cooperate. And instead of just rebelling and be disrespectful, we can find a cooperative solution. Absolutely. About how to handle that. So these rules also have to do with social interactions, which has everything to do with overcoming shyness mm-hmm. and being able to appropriately interface with the other people in our yeah. world. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Jenkins, who, uh, by the way, received his Ph.D. in clinical psychology right here from Brigham Young. BYU. BYU. He's a cougar at heart. And um, he also has Live on Purpose Radio, a podcast. He has Live on Purpose TV. And you can get more if you just go to drpauljenkins.com. Um, one of the things I found, too, about like the shy kid, the seemingly shy kid, is sometimes you put a basketball in his hand and you don't mm-hmm. see these signs of shyness. Like you see this strong kind of aggressive, forceful personality. Right. And so um, you would think that shy would be more than just social. But so maybe mm. what it is is he just needs to see that – who you are is you're you're that guy on the court when you're not thinking. Yeah. You're it, just in the groove. You're in flow. It's so multifaceted, and we all have our areas of strength. Yeah. Sometimes shyness gets put as a label on a kid who's in a in totally out of his comfort zone, out of his his skill zone. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. Like socially. His sweet spot. Right. But you put a hammer in his hand and a saw, and he might create the most mm-hmm. beautiful woodwork you've ever seen. Right. There's also, and I know we won't get into all of this today, but there's there's a difference between introversion and extroversion. Right, right. And, and there's some social biases around that. Oh, yeah. You know, we think, well, you have to be extroverted to be healthy. That's not necessarily true. Well, we talk about the book Quiet and Susan Cain and the whole Harvard movement was about, mm. I mean, they would even evaluate their students for extroversion or right. extroverted traits. So they were actually getting an overabundance of extroverts in their MBA program at Harvard. Mm. And they realized that we do have a bias towards the extrovert. Extroverts. And she even alluded to the fact that maybe some of the fall of our economy over the last few years is because we had a lot of extroverts making decisions, Mm -hmm. but the introverts that actually had the data weren't saying what needed to be said. The introverts wouldn't talk, but the extroverts were talking, but they didn't have the data. And and nobody's asking the introverts. That's right. And you've got to have both. Yeah. To create balance. Right. There are different ways of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And it rounds out a more complete view when we're open to that. Yeah. The the problem is we all know that we're right. And so we take our own perception. Just go with a, it. A very destructively prideful way. We just so move true. forward as if we have all the data. That's so true. Yeah. And then if we don't, we just make it up. Oh, yeah. And we've got really needs. great imaginations too, don't we? That's so true. What should we do? So if we have a child right now that we sense is suffering from their shyness, uh, what would you recommend we do as a parent? I think the first thing we want to do is take a look at ourselves. And that's not the answer people want to hear typically. But take a look at yourself and just see where you are. You know, where's your level of comfort or, or discomfort? Yeah. In social interactions. What is it that I'm modeling for my child? What are we training and teaching and programming our children to do here at home? Yeah. So as a parent, and that's that's painful, Matt, but it's also where our power is. Because the most powerful teacher we have for our kid is our own example. Yeah. 
how we live our life. And if our kid sees us being respectful, for example, following those three rules, respecting ourselves and others, respecting property, cooperating and obeying appropriately, um, that's what they're going to be programmed to do. Right. Now, beyond that, I really like to encourage parents to listen more than they're talking. Yeah. Listen. You got two ears and one mouth, okay? Use it. Heads Shut up. it. Here we One's go. One's meant to stay open. Uh, maybe in that proportion would be a good idea. <laughs> That's right. So listen, and, and that includes being open to some alternate explanations for what you're calling shyness or some other diagnosis that yeah. maybe somebody suggested to you. Oh, your kid's autistic or your right. kid's spectrum or your kid's whatever. Okay, that's fine. There may be some utility to that. But when I say listen, pay attention to and be open to some alternate explanations for that. And there may be some really good reasons why you're seeing your kid doing what they're doing. I had one mom I was working with, Matt, where her son was refusing to talk outside of the home. Hmm. This is a condition we call selective mutism. Right. Um, Refusing. Absolutely would not do it. And as they were in my office, I would ask him a question, and she would answer for him. Now, and I'm thinking, wow, this kid has totally trained, yeah, he's his, trained his mom. spokesperson. Right. Um, he didn't so have true. to talk. Right. Right? Now, and it's not always that straightforward, but um, that self-awareness and, and being able to look at our own contribution to it can be absolutely huge. No, it's so true. And it's, it really is when you think about um, – that's why the listening is so important. How are you impacting this system? Everything's a system. Yeah, so a dynamic. Look at that dynamic. Look at that system. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And w- what part of the problem may you be bringing? Right. How am I contributing? Yeah, that's good stuff. Dr. Paul Jenkins is his name, but you're going to want to go to his website, drpauljenkins.com, or also to YouTube where you can get every day a new uh, video of him teaching you some skill about life or parenting. Relationships. relationships. Living on purpose. Parole officer. I mean, how to handle everybody. Absolutely. Uh, Good stuff. Dr. Paul Jenkins, uh, drpauljenkins.com. We're going to continue the journey up next, do a little empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. Have you ever lost something? You know, and then like 20 years later, you find it. Well, a man in southwest China had a lighter lodged in his stomach for two decades. In his stomach? Yeah. Apparently he uh, had allegedly, uh, apparently he had swallowed it by mistake. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he didn't allegedly swallow it because he Wait. he swallowed it. It was in his... But by mistake. Yeah. And without knowing it. Sometimes you do that. Like if you've ever been playing with a lighter and you fall asleep and you wake up and the lighter's gone... And your stomach hurts. Wow, no, for 20 but years. I, I'm really glad. I mean, these are the things that you got to know about. Yeah, this is why we do the empty news. Doctors removed the plastic object inside the stomach of the 40 year old man last week after he had gone to the hospital. The patient decided to seek medical attention after suffering from a, an acute stomach ache. A black plastic lighter measuring about three and a half inches long was removed from his stomach in China. In China. Oh, my gosh. The patient told the medical staff that he might have accidentally swallowed a lighter in 1998. 
So he, he kind of knew. Yeah. The retrieval procedure took about 10 minutes, and now he's recovering from the operation. Do I you mean, wonder if, like, do you wonder if this stomach ache had been going on for years? Like, if it was 20 years later. Yeah, I'm sure he's had a. Like, procrastinating. Uh, I don't know what it is, but. Well, you would think he was 20, too. So when you accidentally swallow something and you're 20, you'd think that it, it would be like, uh oh. Wait, so he's 20? No, he was 20 when he swallowed it. Oh, he was 20 when he swallowed it. Oh, so okay. he was he was an adult. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. It just seems like. Mom, have you seen my lighter? No. What'd you do with it? I don't know. It was in my mouth when I went to sleep. Ugh. Well, and a lighter is all that stuff, and it sounds like he probably fared pretty well given— Oh, he's lucky he didn't get punched. One punch in the gut, and you flip that lighter, and you, next thing you know— <laughs> Now, that's—would that be a you got heartburn? Heart, you got heartburn. <laughs> hey! <laughs> totally true. Totally true. Hey, a Florida man's own dashboard camera lands him in jail uh, after his dashboard cam showed police more than uh, he intended. The Palm Beach Post reports that the 25-year-old Xavier Moran was involved in a crash on April 5th. He told a sheriff's deputy he'd been cut off from another driver and could prove it with his dashboard cam. He then signed a consent waiver to search the camera, and when Palm Beach County Sheriff's deputy reviewed the footage, he saw Moran burglarizing a beauty store. Oh, Oh, duh. was that on there? Authorities said the video showed Moran taking a baseball bat from the trunk and someone using the bat to break the glass door to the store. Yeah. Wow. So, and I, I think uh, this has got to be the third time I've told you this, Beckett. Don't use your dashboard cam if you're going to burglarize people. Make sure you've turned the dashboard cam off during the burglary. I'm going to have to start writing that down because I forget every I, time. I know. I, the problem is I can say it as many times as I want to, but if you don't listen. I'm a millennial, Matt. Like You millennials, listen. Uh, you won't believe it, but a, a clumsy robber got caught chasing. Uh, this isn't like a, this, this video problem is going everywhere. Uh, it was A clumsy robber was caught chasing stolen cash as the wind blows it away. Um, when the cash was dropping out of his trousers during his getaway. Uh, CCTV footage released by Greater Manchester Police in the UK shows a man struggling to get a hold of the flying cash after two men stole it from travel agents. (laughs) The men walked into the agents at 1 p.m. on Saturday, March 17th, where they demanded the members' staff hand cash from the safe. They shoved the cash down the pockets of their trousers before fleeing the shop, but as they hurried away, um, apparently the bills started flying out of their pockets in the wind. Mm. And the men are then desperately trying to catch the notes, and it's all captured on closed-circuit television. Wow. Again. Risky move. Risky Stopping move. your getaway to... Always bring a bag. Right, that's yeah. Why, that's why Terry keeps a pillowcase in his glove compartment at all times. Mm, that makes sense. He never knows when he'll need a good pillowcase. pillowcase. Crazy. Ah, these kids nowadays. And finally, investigators say a woman's obituary helped federal agents capture her fugitive son nearly four decades after he escaped from an Oklahoma prison. The U.S. Marshals Service said 58-year-old Stephen Michael Paris was arrested without incident Thursday at an office in Houston where he worked under a pseudonym. The agency says investigators tracked him down after an obituary for his mother in Houston listed his son's name as Stephen Chavez. 
the same alias Parrish used while he li- while living and working in the Houston area. Fingerprints eventually confirmed his identity, and Parrish escaped from prison uh, in Muskogee, Muskogee, Oklahoma. So, again, the obituary of your mother. Be careful how you lie there. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. I'm telling you. These, it, it's, it doesn't do you any good to cheat. Right. You're going to be caught. Yeah. And you'd think the police would give up on stuff. But uh, what I'm finding out about police officers and detectives and all of that stuff, they're human beings. And humans want to solve a case. And so even if it's 30 years later, 20 years later, they're going to they're gonna be looking for that obituary of the mother of the guy that's been missing for years. Well, yeah, that's pretty impressive. The uh, All that time later, they're still looking yeah, they never at the obituaries for because that. Because they're humans. This is how humans work. We don't forget. Wow. That's like catch me if you can type stuff. Exactly. Some guy's still reading the newspaper every day looking for that. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Up next, we're going to be talking with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We'll find out what's coming up uh, on their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's that time, folks, uh, to mosey on down and to talk to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, as they get ready for their show that launches in about nine minutes. Hello, gentlemen. There's no reason to mosey. Just barge on in, Matt. (laughs) Just bring it. Holy cow, Lord Vader. Is Darth Vader down there? No, but it is Avengers Day. It's Avengers Day, Day, Matt. Oh, is that what that is? (laughs) Why, do I sound weird? What's going on? Yeah, you sound like you're ordering. Would you like fries with that? Good stuff. I would like some fries with that. <laughs> what? Um, what's going on? Is is today Avengers Day? I did not. Infinity War is coming out, baby. Yeah, you know they all die, right? Okay. Sorry. Come on, man. It's just what it is. This is for the free environment. Just laying down the facts. So, um, okay, today's that's hey, funny. It's Avengers. Well, I guess that's fair. I spoiled something the other day. Yeah, you, you tried. <laughs> you sure tried. Hey, hey, in the internal email, maybe say something about hey. I know. <laughs> I know. I didn't nice. send. I didn't send that out. Sheila either. line. <laughs> Talk to Don Sheila line about that uh, one. Donnie. But um, power to, of love. But today's, by the way, Avengers Day. But it's also the NFL draft. Do they have anything in common? Well, maybe. Hmm? BYU's most likely NFL draft prospect, he's going to get drafted, Fred Warner. Yeah. Could be compared to one of the Avengers, but which one? Which we'll one? Let all of BYU Sports Nation decide. So, yeah, there's a tie there. You guys sure. are tying that? See, I should come produce for your show. I mean, like. You're way too big for us. I'll be a we student producer. You. We can't afford you. We can't afford a guy that's going to do six hours of radio a day. I know. Did you announce it yet? No, no. Okay. No, no, nothing's been announced. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's a lot of radio, guys. It's what? So long. Okay, okay. By the way, what did you think about LeBron's shot last night? Oh, that was amazing. I thought it was. I thought it was awesome. That was great, and I love the side by side comparison with Michael yeah. Jordan's buzzer beater against the Cavaliers. It was like the same side of the floor. Right. They both got the ball and moved to the left, faded away. Although Jordan's was just beyond the free throw line, LeBron's was a three pointer. But Sports Center did a side by side, and it's crazy how close it is. I'm going to say that wasn't as close. Uh, that's not the one that comes to my mind. The one that comes to my mind was the Eastern Conference Finals. Yes. The magic. When he banked it in. Yes. It's the magic. That one looked really similar. And that was incredible. Well, he shot like, it. 92 92 or whatever the score was. But he also blocked the shot before that. Yes. I mean, yeah. And that was, listen, 
two wins in a row by the Cavs when when the Pacers were up 2-1 in that series, up with four minutes to go. They could have gone up 3-1 and kind of all the speculation about LeBron leaving Cleveland would have begun, but now it's on hold for the moment. Ooh. There was another game last night, but we won't oh. talk about that one. Oh, man. Epic Jazz. collapse by the Utah oh. Yes. You know what game it was, though? It's Gobert. Once he's got foul trouble. Well, that fourth foul was uh, blatant. Yeah, oh, Flagrant. Come on. I know. <laughs> what a joke. Anyway. When, when a player says, I didn't touch him, like in that moment, Rudy Gobert can actually say that. I, I really didn't I touch did, him. I really did not touch him. <laughs> it's so true. Come on. Stay out of it, refs. Uh, okay, so what's on your show today? Other than, of course, the Avengers NFL draft. The next assistant coach for BYU basketball. That's right. They now has been in the building for a while. He's just moving offices. Lee Kamard oh, will yeah. join us on his new expanded role. One of the all-time BYU great basketball players, now hoping to coach a bunch of future all-time greats. Oh wow! And there's another report of yeah. another non-conference game for BYU men's basketball. We'll tell you who, and we'll tell you all the games that have been reported or announced for BYU non-conference games this coming season. Mm. And if that doesn't pique your interest. Let's go back to the NFL draft. And just and ask, find another show. <laughs> Matt, where in your football priority list for BYU do NFL draft picks rank? Third. That was a quick answer. Football's, it seems like you football's have fifth. Uh, already thought about this. No, I just Bronco. made that up. I just threw it out there. Okay. All right. That's all. That's, 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 yeah. So, you guys, um, who else would get drafted but Warner? Anyone? There's a shot for Tijon Karoma, Tuni Kanuch, and Jonah Trinaman. Sweet. Tomasi Laulule got uh, some crazy numbers at Pro Day, and he's interviewed with, I think, six or seven different NFL teams, so he's he's got a shot. But I, I imagine that Fred's going to be the guy, and then we'll have a bunch of uh, undrafted free agents. Wasn't that a law firm that you just listed off there? It sounded like a law firm. Tomasi Laulule? Yeah. And the whole, and the rest of the, Who are the other three? T. John Karoma. Uh-huh. Tooney Knuch. Yeah. Jonah Trineman. Great law firm. Also, the uh, <laughs> BYU football team, by the way— uh, Mentioned, or they are in New York City, uh, not for salsa, but for Kalani Satake's More to Life Foundation. They have a relationship with uh, a football league for youth in Harlem. That's right. That's right. So they're there right now doing that. Which oh, how cool. Harlem Jets. Harlem Jet Trotters. Better than the New York Jets, apparently. That's good stuff. Man, that's a good charity. And a good thing that you guys know everything that have has anything to do with BYU sports. Spencer and Jerem, they're four minutes away. Folks, you're going to want to hang on. You don't want to miss those two. They are a party a minute. Actually, party every 30 seconds. Hey, uh, as we wrap it up, we like to do a hero story. And our hero today is a man waiting in line at a Mexico butcher shop, took advantage of an armed robber's momentary distraction to jump on the criminal's back and disarm and subdue him. Surveillance video from Monday shows an unidentified man wearing a cowboy hat standing by the register as a young man wearing a dark colored sweatshirt with a hoodie enters the butcher shop in Monterey. The would-be robber points a handgun at the woman behind the register before pointing it at the man in the cowboy hat and demanding money. At one point, a woman who had been in the back of the store comes forward, drawing the attention of the robber, and the cowboy sees his opportunity, quickly jumps on the suspect's back, and begins uh, riding him like a bronco. Away, it takes the gun away, and the, they start scuffling off camera. Anyway, he saves the day. The hero. They're calling him the hero cab- cowboy. He's the owner of uh, Carnes Cares, which has been in business in Monterey for 11 years. His name is Reynaldo Cardenas. He's 53 years old. He's the hero of the day. And we're honored uh, 
to celebrate him. How cool was that? The video is incredible. He really disarmed a guy with a gun just jumping on his back. Pretty cool moment. That's a hero, my friends, and that's the show for us. We can't uh, do it without you. Join us again tomorrow where we'll help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. But uh, more straight ahead. BYU Sports Nation is up next.